Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but coming to you, of course, thanks to the wonder of the internet all over the world. The people demand the fall of the regime. Let's start in Lebanon, in Beirut, and in Tripoli, and in other towns, cities, and areas across the Levantine country I know so well and where in the 1970s I was, you could say, deeply embedded. The proximate cause of the uprising in Lebanon is a WhatsApp tax. It's always the way that when it's just a bit like Brexit, actually, when a spark is provided, then all the tinder that has been collecting for years, decades, maybe half a century and more, goes up like wildfire. And that's what happened when the Lebanese government, deeply unpopular government, based on a constitution more than half a century old, no longer reflecting the actual makeup of Lebanese society, when they were foolish enough to try and tax people for WhatsApp messages. Just imagine, 6% tax on WhatsApp messages brought people onto the streets. But the uprising quickly became an uprising against government corruption, against the method of government, against the prime minister, and against the president of the republic in particular. Now, there are all kinds of malign actors, of course, at work in these situations. Uh, Some of the people who want to see the fall of the president want to see him fall so an out-and-out fascist can take his place. Some of the people who want to see the downfall of the Prime Minister want to see the downfall of that Prime Minister, Saad Hariri, because he is held widely to be little more than a mouthpiece for Saudi Arabia, the very Saudi Arabia that kidnapped him just a couple of years ago and forced him to resign. It was all about business rather than politics. I don't know where it is going to go. It could be uh, a harbinger much bigger uh, than a cloud the size of a man's hand, as Karl Marx put it. It could actually be a harbinger of a very great storm to come because Lebanon itself is a deeply riven society and its neighbors, Palestine, occupied for all these decades, more than a half a century, And, of course, to its north, the Syrian Arab Republic, which is, as I speak, still under occupation, partly, actually, now by Turkey. Turkey's invasion of Syria uh, to crush the forces of the YPG, the PKK, uh, branded uh, terrorist organization, ironically, in the United States, 
and for that matter in the European Union, but de facto the ally of the United States over the last couple of years in Syria. Of course, uh, the front was that the YPG were helping the United States to defeat ISIS. But of course, ISIS had already been defeated by the Syrian Arab army and by its allies. The real purpose of the United States and its cat's paws in the northeast of Syria and in the west was to try and bring down the regime in Damascus. It's a very complicated picture now that Donald Trump has finally done what he said he would do on the campaign trail and withdraw American forces from the area. Russia is determined not to see all-out war between Syria and Turkey and has interposed itself, its forces, between these two parties. It's a big win diplomatically, without a doubt, for the government of President Vladimir Putin and the foreign policy of Sergei Lavrov, surely the most effective two world leaders in action anywhere in the world today. Uh, in South America, that which we thought was exceptional when it broke out 10 days ago or so in Ecuador, a huge outpouring of demands from the people for the fall of the regime of Lenin Moreno, and that too was sparked by an apparently, relatively speaking, small matter, an increase in petrol duties forced by the IMF, and of course the huge IMF loan was given to Ecuador as blood money for the handing over of Julian Assange uh, to the United States of America, though he's not quite there yet and many a slip between cup and lip and all that. But as soon as Moreno began implementing the terms of the huge IMF loan to Ecuador, then the trouble started. Uh, it was blamed, of course, on Russia. Everything is blamed on Russia. Every time a tin pot tyrant is challenged, it's blamed on Russia or blamed on fictitiously uh, described uh, people acting as surrogates for the Russian leadership. In this case, the case of Ecuador, uh, the president of Venezuela, uh, Nicolas Maduro, was blamed for the uprising of the Ecuadorian people against their own regime. I don't know if they've yet blamed Russia in Chile, but in Chile also there's a huge uprising going on. Ditto in Haiti. There's a big uprising going on in Catalonia, in Spain, in the European Union, though you wouldn't know about it unless you were watching RT and listening to Sputnik News, because no one can afford to show on their screen now two European Union countries where the security forces are gassing, battering, bludgeoning, rubber bulleting their own people. That only happens, doesn't it, in Hong Kong. If it was happening in Russia, of course it would be the top of your news. But no one can allow the scenes every week for a whole year in France to reach you unless you're watching programs like this 
on stations like this. Ditto now in Catalonia. That is already being uh, blamed on Russia. Now, for the avoidance of doubt, I don't myself support the breakaway of rich regions from relatively poor countries so that the rich areas can be even richer than they were. So I'm not a supporter of Catalan separatism, but I'm even less of a supporter of the brutal crackdown by the government in Madrid and the imprisonment for a hundred years, a hundred years of 12 democratically elected Catalan politicians for the crime of organizing an unofficial referendum. As an overreaction, that will take some beating when the history comes to be written. And of course, the situation in Catalonia, which was apparently bowling along uh, a state of dual power uh, between the Catalan nationalists and the government in Madrid, has now caught fire in a very dramatic way. And the people in Barcelona and in Catalonia are demanding the fall of the regime. In Britain, it's different. Here, the opposition is demanding that the regime stay in power. Every time the British government, the minority conservative government of the wisest fool in Christendom, Boris Johnson, asks for a general election, the opposition say, no, stay in power, stay in Downing Street. For all the bad that you've been doing, we don't want the chance to turf you out in a democratic election. Super Saturday it was billed in Westminster. So entitled, so otherworldly are the members of parliament in the building a few hundred yards from here that one of them stood up to widespread support and demanded that the taxpayer should pay for the childcare costs to members of parliament for having to come in on a Saturday for only the third time in the last 75 years. And they went on to prove just how entitled, just how otherworldly they are. They don't have the numbers to block Brexit, so they pulled an Oxford Union debating jape trick to delay it. And in my view, they won't have delayed it by more than a few days because there is now a majority in the House of Commons to get Brexit done. Not many people like the deal. The Irish people love it because it has placed Ireland closer to reunification than it has been, well, since it was severed asunder by British colonialism a hundred years ago. So the Irish people, apart from the pro-British unionists, are actually very keen indeed on this deal. So that's one fox shot. A lot of Labour MPs said they couldn't support Brexit or any deal that they had by then seen because it would endanger <laughs> their project of peace, reconciliation and eventual reunification in Ireland. Now that Ireland's mad for the deal, 
they have to look elsewhere for an excuse to try and block it. They said, many of them, we can't leave the European Union without a deal. And we think Boris Johnson is determined on no deal. But that fox has now been shot too. He's got a deal. The European Union want that deal. The British government wants that deal. So what's the reason now for blocking it? Well, one that was often repeated, especially by Labour members of Parliament, was that leaving the EU with this deal would slash workers' rights. But of course, all it would do would be to transfer workers' rights to the British Parliament rather than an unelected bureaucracy in Brussels. And it doesn't slash anybody's rights, neither environmental rights nor labor union rights nor any other kind of rights. And that doesn't bear a moment's examination, but I've got to make this point to you. The Tony Blair and Gordon Brown governments were in power for 13 years with big parliamentary majorities. And the same MPs now crying about the threat to workers' rights didn't lift a finger to reinstate workers' rights that Mrs. Thatcher destroyed in her long period of office, even though they had the power to do so just like that. In the United States, of course, the battle for the Democratic presidency, uh, presidential candidature continues apace, and Bernie is back. 40,000 people gathered in a New York park to hear him, Ocasio-Cortez, Michael Moore, address a magnificent, gigantic, mammoth rally. Bernie's back. Anybody who was counting on the little heart problem that he had, ruling him out of the race, is now having to eat their words. And speaking of the eating of words, I believe the tweet of the decade, maybe longer, came from Tulsi Gabbard as a response to Hillary Clinton's slander of her and of Dr. Jill Stein, the presidential candidate I supported last time out when she was the candidate of the Green Party. Both of them, according to Hillary Clinton, are Russian assets, don't you know? They're agents of President Putin in Moscow. Even though Tulsi Gabbard is a military officer still in service, fighting in America's wars, they denounced her as a Russian asset. When Tulsi hit back on Twitter, calling Hillary Clinton the queen of warmongers, I cheered to the rafters, not least because this day is the day of the fall of the regime in Libya, the fall of Colonel Gaddafi, his brutal murder, the sodomizing of his corpse with a knife. This is the anniversary of it. And do you know what Hillary Clinton said about that? She said, we came, we saw, 
he died. And then she laughed. Oh, how she laughed. Well, she ain't laughing now. Her name is Mud. It's in the tank. And for that, I'll always be grateful to Tulsi Gabbard. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My wife, Gayatri, has designed a beautiful new badge. Moats graduate. We'll put the image up on the screen at some point. And I was speaking in Liverpool last night, as many of you know. And thanks to all those who came, 259 people came to the mother of all talk shows roadshow. And given that Jeremy Corbyn was speaking around the corner, that was a pretty good result. As was the result at Old Trafford today. The, the uh, champions-elect Liverpool were held to a 1-1 draw by Manchester United, supported by me and my next guest. I've spoken about Sparks a lot tonight. He is one of the brightest Sparks in the entire British media firmament. He's got a huge future in front of him, and you'll always remember you saw him first here on the mother of all talk shows. Not a bad result, really. Not a bad one, result. 1-1. One. I thought I Liverpool mean, were going to do a United and score in the last minute for a minute then, but was, no, not quite. It was uh, squeaky bum time, as <laughs> Alex Ferguson uh, put it. Patrick Christie's thanks for coming on the show. Principally, I want to talk to you about the Brexit situation now. I described uh, the Oliver Letwin manoeuvre, uh, which succeeded on Saturday in turning Super Saturday into a waste of childcare fees uh, by delaying uh, the uh, inevitable, I think, the vote on the actual deal that Johnson has done with the uh, European Union. Uh, Oliver Letwin, of course, the author, inventor of the poll tax and many other accursed things, is now uh, a hero of the liberal and labor classes. Uh, there are some things you never expect to see in life. That is one of them. What's your take on what happened on Super Saturday? Well, I thought it was a bit of a disgrace. I thought it was probably the worst build Super Saturday since Hull versus Southampton on Sky Sports a few years ago. <laughs> um, it was all too predictable, purely because we've seen it happen so many times before, where you think you're in with a sniff, and actually common sense goes straight out the window. For my money, I thought it was an affront. I thought it was a pernickety attempt to stick two fingers back up to Boris after he removed the whip from Sir Oliver Letwin. And I think that that's a real disgrace. And we now currently can't get away from the fact that the current situation in this country is that we have a parliament that's blocking Brexit, it's blocking no deal, and it's blocking a general election. And I think that that plays very, very badly. It's blocking no deal, blocking a deal, yeah. and blocking a general yeah. election. I mean, what is it for, this well, it, parliament? The facade of democracy has gone completely out the window. And you have a speaker as well there who basically picks and chooses what's being discussed to suit his own agenda. And mm. I think that that is completely out the I think that should be, should be deemed to be pretty disgraceful, to be honest. I think just in terms of what Boris Johnson's deal actually was, look, let's be honest, it's not perfect, right? I think we've, we've had to have give up, haven't we, really, on the idea now that we're ever going to get into a situation where you and I, George, probably look at it and go... This is a perfect situation. But I thought there were elements to that where it was probably the best of what could have been quite a bad lot. Fundamentally... Certainly much better than yeah. Theresa May's deal. 
Oh, absolutely. Very much better. Absolutely. Especially if you're Irish. Well, two of the main... Two of the main... I see Labour has announced today that they're open to talks with the DUP. Oh, Perhaps they'll put John McDonnell up <laughs> in a balaclava yeah. Yeah. As, the, uh, as the Labour negotiator with the DUP. I thought it was pretty funny. About 24 minutes, I think it was, after Boris Johnson announced that he'd got a deal, the cameras panned to Jeremy Corbyn and he said, oh, I'm never going to vote for this. Well, given that his current policy is to vote against his own deal, then I think that's a little bit... <laughs> I don't think I was to, to, to be unexpected. News. Exactly, you know. <laughs> uh, but look, I, I think this is now getting far too much for the British public. Yeah, the weekend crossed the line to me, and I maybe shouldn't have been teetering on the edge of this line for as long as I was, but I was. And the weekend just, just, just ruined it for me. I looked at it and thought, actually, the facade now that anyone in that building sitting on their backside, earning 80 or grand a year, whatever it may be, comprehensive expenses package as well, Rather, as we forget, um, is, is there for any other reason than something that's particularly self-serving, went totally out the window for me. I think we have to look at it now and go, what is Labour's policy? They've got a lifelong Brexit here, there he's now come out in favour of Remain. The Liberal Democrats are... Uh, now, to be fair, uh, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't done it, but all of his uh, friends yes. have. Yes. And he's done nothing about that. Yes. Uh, let me talk about that, because uh, it's quite dramatic, really. Emily Thornberry, Keir Starmer and John McDonnell, the erstwhile Trotskyite, all addressed on a platform with Michael Heseltine, mm. who shut down the coal mines in Britain, all announced, A, that Labour is a Remain party, mm. which its conference decided not to say, and all demanded a referendum on Boris Johnson's deal, a, a complete brazen defiance of their own conference policy of last month and of their own shadow cabinet policy of last week. Because both of these demanded a general election first, then a Labour deal, which then Jeremy Corbyn would remain neutral on. He's lost control of uh, the Labour Party. Hasn't he? It, it certainly looks that way, absolutely. And he's lost control of it in that sense. He's made a decision, hasn't he? I think he's made a decision that he obviously wants to put forward quite a radical social agenda. Now, actually, to be perfectly honest with you, given the way the NHS is, the education system is, you can, the transport system, you could argue that we are due quite a radical reform to those elements of it. Fine, but I think he's made the decision, hasn't he? If he wants the keys to Downing Street, what's he willing to compromise on? And clearly, he's willing to compromise keeping the unity of his own party and basically giving himself a slightly easier life. And the compromise to that has been, in my opinion, his quite long-held personal beliefs about the European Union. And, and that should be a little bit of a warning sign for people because his USP is that he is a deeply principled individual who sticks by his guns. And in this situation, for the whiff of power, he has removed himself, detached himself from that notion. And that should be a concern for but, people. But, uh, Patrick, it also presupposes that people are going to vote Labour, uh, given what stand they've taken, the role they've played in blocking Brexit. Now, there were five million Labour voters voted for Brexit. Two-thirds of Labour-held constituencies voted Brexit. Three-quarters of Labour's target seats voted Brexit. I, I totally failed to see where even an unprincipled 
electoral advantage can come out of that. I think he's tied himself up in knots. He, he really has, for all the facts that you've just announced out. And the big winner in all of this, for me, like it or loathe it, and many people will loathe it, has to be Nigel Farage in that situation. Because a lot of people in those Labour seats, the traditionally safe Labour seats, especially in the northern heartlands, there is no way on the face of this earth that they're going to walk back into that working man's club or the local bar and tell anyone they voted Tory. But I tell you what now, I reckon a lot of them would vote for Nigel Farage. And they couldn't bring themselves to vote for a Corbyn government that wanted to keep us in the European Union if they voted for Brexit. And so the big winner in that context for me is Nigel Farage. And that is the antithesis of what a lot of Labour supporters and what a lot of Labour MPs stand for. But they've done it themselves. They might as well tick the vote to vote for Farage themselves because that is what their current policy has done. Let's look at the Conservatives. Um... The Sir Oliver Letwin is one of those who was expelled, so you could say he was the one that threw the spanner in the works. Uh, if he hadn't done so, if he'd pulled it, which he could have done, mm. he was being pressed to pull it, then the deal would have gone through on Saturday. I'm sure about mm. that. Most of the 21 Conservative MPs that Johnson expelled uh, are back on site. About five of them are not, but most of them are back on side. Even Kenneth Clark was going to vote for Boris Johnson's uh, deal. So what happens now? Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House, has announced another vote on Monday. The Speaker may try and stop that, but I don't see how he can. Uh, I think the numbers are there for Johnson's deal now. I think they absolutely are. Um, it will be a close-run thing, definitely, but I do think that the numbers are there. But that, for me, makes it all the more annoying, really, what Sir Oliver Letwin decided to do. And I think this sums up a lot of the reasons why people now feel a massive disconnect between what's going on in the House of Commons and their day-to-day -day lives. Here you had a bloke in Sir Oliver Letwin who has a long-standing history, as you rightly pointed out at the start, and clearly for him, his main priority there was just giving Johnson a little dig on the ribs in the way to maybe voting this through, because, of course, he removed the whip from him. Now, the reality is that there are real-life consequences to this. And you had a bloke there who is not, frankly, going to feel the effects of any kind of dither or delay. I imagine he's quite financially secure as an Very secure, and Very he's standing secure. down at the next election. Oh, exactly. There you go. So he's just easing his way into retirement. And even if we had the ultimate of ultimate no-deal Brexit, I dare say that that guy would probably still have food on his table. And this sums it up. He was willing to have a little dig in the ribs as opposed to getting things done and setting the wheels in motion. And that is where the disconnect and the priorities, in my opinion, of a lot of our parliamentarians differ from the real-life situation on the ground. Yes. Um, and if... It doesn't go through, maybe not even allowed uh, to, to, to be put to the vote. Uh, Boris Johnson has now sent not one but three letters uh, to the European Union. Uh, which, one is, uh, which one is applicable? Which one is the real letter? The one he didn't sign or the one that he signed asking the EU to ignore the last letter? This is farcical, isn't it? It's farcical. I like it. I like what he's just done. I'm not going to lie to you. I do, because what he said is that the actual technical wording, and bear in mind all these court cases that we've seen have come down to minute, legal minutiae, haven't they? Well, it looks as though Boris Johnson has decided, well, you know what, well, I'm going to play you at your own game. Because the Ben Act didn't require me to actually sign this. He sent it through and pushed it through as a photocopy simply of what the wording was in that. Now, I quite like the fact that he's done that. 
In my opinion, I think that that does mean that actually he has adhered to the law. And the funny thing about this is, is that if he gets taken to court, he will be taken to court for not acting within the spirit of the Ben Act. Now, what is the spirit of the Ben Act? I'm not sure the law's good at defining <laughs> spirits. Is it not? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but what is the spirit of the Ben Act, really? The spirit of the Ben Act, surely, is to delay Brexit until the democratic will of the people is ultimately overturned. Now, if that is the spirit of the Ben Act, then I couldn't give a toss whether or not that is adhered to. I just want this thing to be over, and I think I'm not the only one. Uh, I was talk I spend weekends in the North or the Midlands uh, on alternative weekends. Uh, this week it was in the North. Uh, I go to football, my boys all play, and I talk to a lot of the other parents. And all of them, more or less, asked me, what's going to happen today? Mm. And all of them were of a mind that they are sick to the back teeth of all this delay. They want this done. And all the opinion polls indicate that however people voted uh, in the referendum, they're sick of the delay. They want on with it, one way or another. They don't want uh, the uh, politics of this country to be permanently paralyzed by this question. They want to get back to arguing about the health service, yeah. the schools, the transport system and all the other uh, issues. Is that your, you're a journalist with your finger on the mm. pulse, you do radio shows every day, you take calls. Is that your feel of public opinion generally? I started doing a new uh, thing where I go out and just take box pops at random parts of the United Kingdom. So did a couple around London, I've done a couple up north. And some will remain back in seats and some were not. And the general result of those is that people are sick and tired of it. They want it over right now. And if we end up, even if we ended up with a no-deal scenario, genuinely, the mood on the ground that I'm picking up is that they don't even blame Boris Johnson for that. They blame no. the fact that we've had three and a half a years. Actually, no deal has 40% support in the country. Yeah. If we had a second referendum, the only legitimate second referendum that we could have, in my view, is one where the question is, do you want a no-deal Brexit? Mm. Or do you want Boris Johnson's deal? Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure who'd win that referendum, are you? No, absolutely. There is, a, there is a decent case for both. And I think that actually in that scenario, I think when you outlined it all, given that with a no deal and not with Boris Johnson's current deal, with regards to things like our fishing waters, for example, which presumably under a no deal scenario we would be able to reclaim full control of. And the money, the, the £39 <laughs> billion pounds you wouldn't have to pay. I mean, it writes itself and you don't even need to lie on the side of a bus this time. <laughs> you know? So I think, I think we'd be all right if it was a no deal scenario. Well, yes. look, Patrick, earlier uh, in the week uh, I took to RT and set out my own views uh, about the European Union. I know you'll like them. Go on. Take a look. It's been over three years since Britain voted to leave the European Union by a majority of well over one million votes. The lived experience of the British people, particularly in industrial Britain and even post-industrial Britain, as well as in rural and suburban areas, two-thirds of the parliamentary constituencies in Britain voted to Brexit. The lived experience of the population was that they were not happy with the status quo of 40 years and more of membership of the EU. The crucifixion of Greece, the crushing of Catalonia had all exposed to people the true nature of the once upon a time imagined cuddly teddy bear in Brussels. People 
wanted a change. They voted for a change because they inherently realized that a government, an administration, a power that you did not elect, cannot remove, is by definition an administration, a government that you cannot control. The European Union's very articles of association are inimical to individual countries exercising control over their own affairs. The European courts, the European banks, now the European army are all evidence of an onward march to a supranational state where democracy is an illusion, where people whose names we don't know and if we know them we cannot pronounce them, we didn't vote for them, we can't remove them, are increasingly in charge of our political and our economic affairs. A British government, any British government, a left-wing British government, a right-wing British government would not be able to pursue the manifestos on which they had stood for office. And as my political mentor for many decades, the late and great Tony Benn always said, if you can't remove the people who are in control of you, you are not living in a democracy. I want a different kind of Britain to the one that Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson wants. But the truth is, none of us can have the Britain we want as long as we remain in the European Union. But that's not all. The sun is rising in the east. It's setting in the west. Largely, the European Union is a collection of fading, failing economies. Of course, the German powerhouse, the industrial engine room of the European Union, will always be prosperous, and good luck to them, hard-working people, the Germans. Uh, but I never voted to allow a German government to decide what kind of economy we should have here in Britain. The great granary of French agriculture, wonderful. People love the grapes, eat the cheese, drink the wine, not me, you understand, but people are happy for France in the European Union, though, as President Macron said, he would never give the people of France a referendum on leaving the EU because he knows, this is his words, that they would also vote to leave it. We have no animus towards the people, even the governments of the European Union. We just want to slip our moorings in the European Union and sail off into the world where economies are booming or set to boom. We don't want to sanction Russia because the EU says so. We don't want to exclude China because the EU says so. I want a Britain with an independent economy and an independent foreign policy. And I'm prepared to try and persuade my compatriots here in Britain to elect such a government. It's called democracy. So whatever happens now with the EU, I believe more people, having looked closely at how we've been treated in the three years because we had the temerity to vote to leave more people than ever realize that our future lies outside the European Union. What we can never agree to is to check in to the Hotel California where you can check out any time you like but you can never leave. Have something to say? 
Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Give us your view on Super Saturday, on what you've just heard, on what Patrick thinks and has said, and ditto me. Here's the telephone numbers. If you're in the UK, it's 02077 982 255. If you're calling on the US number, it's 001001-757-744-4480. You can also, of course, tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK News. Uh, Patrick, uh, will there be a general election this year? It's beginning to look more like, to me, next spring rather than this year. Let's say Johnson gets his deal this week. Mm. Let's say we leave on the 31st. Do we immediately go into a general election? Well, I think it's, the fact is that we are absolutely due one. I think the big thing that the ball and chain that Boris Johnson is going to be carrying around with him until he has a general election is the fact that he isn't elected. And that clearly doesn't ring true. A lot of people like you and I who just want democracy, full stop. It would be better if we could have the chance to go to the polls and elect a prime minister. What I suspect is that if Boris Johnson does manage to get this through, then he will want a little bit of time for the wheels to start rolling into motion for that state place. However, genuinely, I personally would like to see an election sooner rather than later. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that we currently have a situation where the opposition doesn't seem to particularly want power. We uh, don't want the fall <laughs> of the regime, say yeah. the opposition. Yeah, exactly. It's nuts, isn't it? You would no. never, you would never ever get that. spent three years demanding Dude, a general spent, election. Actually won about 22 times, didn't he? Yeah. Three, but, you know, it was, yeah. I think well, well, yeah, there was still a petition on Labour's website when Boris Johnson came into power and when Boris Johnson was trying to get an election through from Labour calling for a general election and they said no to it. It's like living in Georgia was 1984, isn't it? But yeah. look... Stop the coup. No, keep the coup going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> look, the realities of it is that I think you may be right that there will be some delays. I'll tell you one of the reasons. We have never... I've been fighting elections since the 1960s. We have never had a November election uh, in my lifetime. I'm not sure if we've ever had one in history. Mm. We've had October elections, that's the latest. We've had February elections, that's the earliest. But we've never had a November one. The nights are cold and dark and wet. Yes, it's very true. And I think there is a lot of voter apathy out there. The only thing is, from a purely kind of... Uh, practical sense for Boris Johnson is that if he does manage to get a deal through, I can remember when he got that deal, we, you know, we agreed with the EU a couple of days ago, I was on the tube on the way in and I could almost feel a different atmosphere around Yeah, London, there was a sense there of was, relief in the country. There, there yeah. was. And if he rides that wave, I suspect that he would do rather well at the polls. And so that is a question for him. I think with Boris, we obviously know he has a rather fruity personal life and backstory. I suspect that he'd be, best, he'd be best inclined to actually ride any wave of positivity that he has because you never quite know what's around the corner. Well, with him, you don't know what's going to fall out the uh, wardrobe uh, or the cupboard, <laughs> what technology lessons oh, yeah. uh, are going to uh, yeah. emerge. But if he pulls it off, he's written his name in history, hasn't he? I yeah. mean, nobody really expected him to get a deal and most people thought he wasn't even trying to get a deal. Yes. But he got one that was better than the predecessor uh, deal. Um, for all, you know, I have no time for him at all. Yeah. And I can't wait for Brexit so I can unleash what I really feel about him. But nobody could take it away that he'd yeah. be the Prime Minister that, against the odds, managed to take us out of the EU.
Yeah, there's this kind of bumbling blonde buffoon image, and to an extent, that obviously is true. However, <laughs> isn't it... I've come on your show before and spoken about the power of positivity. Now, I'm not one of these kind of new-age healers that thinks if you just think something is going to be true. No, but for all these people that are talking this country down and telling us what we can't do, what we can't do when we leave the EU, how bad things are going to be, what we can't do in relation to getting a Brexit deal, you had a bloke there who went, and for all his faults, and there are numerous faults with Boris Johnson, as you well know, for all his faults, he went and he was bullish and he was proud and he was forceful and he was confident and at the end of that we garnered results and there is no way that you would ever raise a child to tell them to always think the worst and always think that they were, the glass was half empty and always think that everything was going to go against them and never try just in case you fail so why should we want our political leaders to do that and for all his faults as I've said he went and did it didn't he and actually he deserves some credit for that doesn't he squeeze uh, Nigel Farage doesn't he shoot Nigel Farage's fox to be gets us out on the 31st. What's the point of a Brexit party? Well, this is the thing. I, initially, initially, I was a little bit confused by Nigel Farage's response, and I was concerned that actually what he was watching there was his kind of uh, relevance, almost, in British politics, slide away from his grasp. And that title, Deputy Prime Minister Nigel Farage, after his Brexit party has propped the Tories up in the next election, was just drifting off into the horizon. But actually, I do think, part of me does think, that Nigel Farage is still performing quite a valuable public service. Because as long as the Brexit party exists, and as long as they are pushing for the hardest of hard possible Brexit, then it doesn't let that remain fox back into the coup. And it means that actually, potentially, there is still quite a lot of pressure there to make sure that Brexit is enforced and that going forward, and our existing relationship, bear in mind we have this transition period, there is still pressure there from a very worthwhile and very staunch Brexit cause. And so, whilst Nigel Farage might not get his seat in Parliament just yet, although he could do, whilst he might not have quite a Well, he was offered uh, a peerage uh, in the papers this morning. It says yeah. he was, I don't think he'd come that cheap. He, he would want rather <laughs> more than a seat in the House of Lords with Alan Sugar. No. <laughs> no, no. What a dinner party that would be. Uh, yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> exactly. Now, uh, uh, the number is, if you've got any point of view on this, 02077982255. Or tweet us, George Galloway, or at RTUK News, preferably uh, both. Uh, here's uh, the tweets I've got so far. How can Corbyn align himself with the real Tories, a.k.a. Letwin and Berko? Berko is the Speaker of the House of Commons. Letwin was policy writer of the poll tax, instigated... Uh, um, I'm not going to read that next bit because it's absolute <laughs> bollocks. Uh, here's uh, the last Benoit, says, walk into any working men's club across West Yorkshire and the dyed-in-the-wool Labour voters have shorn the locks of their London-centric representatives and are looking elsewhere. They have been betrayed by the Labour Party. And Paul Booker Esquire says if the Postal Vote Brigade get their way and a second referendum is held and that doesn't go their way either, will they finally accept the result or will they want another one and then another one and another one ad infinitum? And uh, Sue Evans asks, do you foresee any more strategies that the Remainers can use to stop Brexit? What's your view on that? Well, the potential one, of course, is with regards to a no-deal Brexit, whether they could go take Boris Johnson to court over the legalities of whether or not uh, uh, that is possible. The other one, and one that I think we might face relatively quickly, is re relating to the letters that Boris Johnson has just sent to the European they, Union. They might argue, or the, a court might find, that this was a breach. Yes, because he was, well, in their eyes, mm. he was supposed, or slash legally bound, to sign the letter 
asking for an extension, which, of course, he did not do. In fact, he posted it in the same envelope as a letter, really saying that I don't want an extension. The issue with that is, and look, I'm not some kind of hotshot lawyer, the issue with that is the wording of that did request that Boris Johnson sent the letter. It didn't request that he sign the letter. And so whether or not the court can decide against Boris Johnson singularly based on the spirit of things, no, I don't, I that's that. not the law. That's not, that's not how the law works. Imagine. Yeah, I doubt that. Uh, what about the fact that the EU would have to unanimously agree to have an extension in the first place. The Irish government's now mad for Boris Johnson's deal. There will never be a better deal ever reached yeah. for the Irish. So why should uh, Vardakar uh, agree an extension? Well, why should Macron agree an extension? Well, listen, you know it's 2019 when all the rules have changed, when the French might come to our rescue on this. Apparently, Emmanuel Macron has basically gone, no, I've had enough of this, I'm sick inside of this relentless roller coaster of misery that we're all on, and actually there's no need for any extension. Even Jean-Claude Juncker does seem to be lobbying for this to be the final, final version of it. So, look, that is the ultimate case for this, and the way that Boris Johnson could seriously end up getting this through is if frankly the European Union goes, look, there's no need for an extension. And why would there be? Because Boris Johnson has given ground on this, and he has given ground on this. The EU have just about given ground on this. What better deal is well, there going to be? Yeah, well, they've given ground on the Irish question, of yeah, course. There's yeah. now no backstop. Uh, there's uh, a quite um, creative solution to the Irish uh, situation. Uh, you know, I've got to take my hat off to him uh, for that. Um, and, in fact, it just goes to show that Theresa May didn't have to uh, write her deal in the way that she did write it, that uh, a, a better deal was available on the... Mm. Irish question, but it achieved overnight uh, the Irish government's full support, Sinn Féin's full support. The only people who are against it are the uh, malcontents of the Democratic Unionist Party. Uh, presumably they don't get any any new bungs uh, now that they, yeah. uh, they jumped ship, uh, jumped uh, off uh, Boris's ship. I mean, one imagines on past practice that they came with a price, yes. their 10 votes. And presumably now there's no price because uh, unless they come on board this week, maybe. Yes, well, well, exactly, you would have thought so. I think that, well, clearly, as we all think, their main issue is that Northern Ireland would it's technically be treated differently to the rest of the United Kingdom. We all know, of course, better. that's not something... You know, treated well, better. This is, well, this is it, isn't it? This is why I don't think they've got any ground for it, because when they campaign for the fact that they don't want Northern Ireland to be treated differently, they don't want it to be treated worse. Yeah. But this isn't treating it's it worse. It's now treated better. <laughs> Fraser Nelson, a yeah. right-wing commentator in The Spectator, uh, has just made this point, um, as has Aaron Banks. Yeah that actually the north of Ireland, six counties, can become the economic powerhouse uh, of the new Britain because it's got the best of both worlds. It's got a foot now in each camp. Well, this is the thing. And actually, one of the main issues is that they, they don't want to pay, obviously, any tariffs that go through there because that would, that would mean that they were treated differently. But if the UK government decided to subsidise those tariffs, which mm. they could do, mm -hmm. actually, then problem solved. Cheaper than bunging the DUP. It's cheaper than bunging the DUP. I know the Northern Irish business person would have to be out of pocket as a result. And we have seen, by virtue of the fact that we're talking about this, that Boris Johnson does take a creative approach to things. That's not beyond the realms of 
possibility. And over time, if we do go out into the world, as I fully expect that we will, and strike up trade deals with all and sundry and do a rather good job of it, then Northern Ireland can reap the benefits of those deals. And after a period of time, their economy becomes less revolved around the European Union's economy and more around ours. And that is when you start to see that every four-year vote that the Northern Irish Assembly will have as to whether or not they want to essentially remove it'll be uh, It'll be reunified before that. Savard <laughs> is in the south of France. Why are you against the EU if you're in favour of the Union of England and Scotland? That's a pretty easy one to answer. But hey, let, me let me hear it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Good evening, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you very much. How is the south of France? Assalamu alaikum. Alhamdulillah. Very well. Thank you, brother. Go ahead. George, for many years, I was always on the same page with you. But I don't, uh, I don't call you and argue with you because whatever you say is totally in line with what I think. Yeah. But there is one thing I don't understand, George. Please explain it to me. Yeah. Uh, you talk about uh, the Arab countries, they're not united, and they don't have the United States of Arabia, mm. and I agree with you with that. Mm. Uh, you, you were against the, uh, the, the uh, or rather you were in favour of the United uh, Kingdom. You wanted Scotland to be part of uh, England. No, it was part of Britain. Or rather, with England to be part yeah. of the United uh, Kingdom. Yeah. yeah. Why are you against the United European? What's it? What's what's wrong? Where, well, where am I, I misunderstanding you? No, but you're you're comparing apples with oranges. Uh, first of all, uh, the main reason is democracy. In Britain, we democratically elect those that rule us, and we can vote them out. In European, in the European Union, we're ruled by people that, whose names we don't even know. We have no vote. Uh, to appoint them and cannot vote them out. We don't appoint the person who runs the European Central Bank. We don't elect them. We don't elect the so-called president of the European Union Commission. We don't uh, elect the person that runs our foreign policy. So we can't affect what they decide to do. Secondly, I want a unity of the Arabs because 350 million Arabs have a common language, a common culture, live in a common space. I candidly have little in common with Slovakia or Slovenia. They don't speak my language, neither I speak theirs. And they have their own government that they elected and only they can remove. So if we had uh, a Europe where uh, everybody in the European Union elected everyone who had power in it, uh, that would be one thing. But it's hopelessly impractical because the European Union is simply too big and too diverse to be subject to that kind of democratic control. I believe uh, that the nation state in Britain is the optimal size of population, density, size of territory and so on to have a truly democratic country. If I've got to persuade the people in Slovakia to elect the same kind of government that I'm trying to elect in Britain, and I'm picking Slovakia only randomly, I could pick any one of the other 27. Thanks very much, Sabah. I'm sorry I have disappointed you, but that's where I stand and have done since 1975. Sarkar is in Glasgow. Let's hear from him. Sarkar, what would you like Hi. to say? 
Good evening, George. In fact, believe me, as usual, fantastic show, mate. Thank and you. Amazing insight, George. Thank you. Uh, my question would be, Saturday, believe me, at the highest of hopes that this was a deal which EU agreed, which the Irish government agreed, Sinn Féin, who always abstained from voting, they were more or less happy with that. I'm not even getting into DUP. But suddenly, Keir Starmer, McDonald, and suddenly Letwin of all people comes in. First, they complain that we don't want no deal, so that's why we'll try and put a spoke in the wheel of Boris's plan. Then they say that, okay, he's got a deal, but we won't vote on that deal, thanks to Mr. Burko and many more like that. They want the Letwin thing to be passed first instead of the deal. By doing these kinds of things, are they really thinking they're helping the people anyway at all? There's a limit to people's patience. Yeah, I How think people are people furious about that? it. Yeah, people are furious uh, about it, Sarkar, and uh, I can sense that you are too. Uh, it was such a damp squib, Patrick. Everyone thought Saturday was the day. Yeah. I mean, I spoke to all the parents at the game I attended in the North on Saturday, and all of them felt... Yeah. This was the day it was going to be decided. But that's actually a pretty good barometer. And if more people got out and about and left the corridors of power in, in, yeah. in Westminster and yeah. left that echo chamber, then actually I think we'd be in a better place. And I've got a little bit of a theory on this, and it's kind of the dominant grief theory in a way, which is that actually, for the first time in their lives, they have tens of thousands of people outside Parliament that are happy to see them. They have tens of thousands of people outside who are telling them, oh, I agree with you. I suspect that they went through a lot of their early lives at school, maybe not necessarily being overly popular. Not being that popular, Maybe when they yeah. went to university, maybe they were not one of the cool kids. Maybe they never quite understood why their double-breasted jacket didn't work in Fabric Nightclub. And now, for the very first time in their lives, they've got tens of thousands of people going, oh, I quite like you, and they've got drunk on that power, and they don't see the wider ramifications of their dither and delay. I think you're right, Patrick. I was wrong. Uh, for the first time since the late 70s. There was a November election in 1935. Oh. Stanley Baldwin defeated the Labour leader, Clement Attlee, on the 14th of November, 1935. Just goes to show... Hey, it happens. You can't be right about everything <laughs> all the time. The events of 1935 temporarily slipped my mind. I'm with one of the brightest sparks on the British media scene, up-and-coming young journalist, Patrick Christie, who's going to stay for a little while and help me with the American elections. But first, the social media feedback on the Brexit issue mm. is so enormous, we'll have to do uh, some of it. Gordon Harris says, it seems there's plenty of MPs prepared to sup with the devil if the price is right. Our respect for them is becoming less and less as our anger becomes more and more. Something and someone will have to give, and I don't think it will be us. This is uh, something I fear that most MPs haven't grasped yet, the almost bottomless contempt for them. Uh, out there in the country, outside the bubble. And I think there's a certain irony, which is that people calling for more democracy, i.e. a second referendum, seem to be completely oblivious to the fact that the reality at every single general election, in my opinion, for the foreseeable future following a potential second referendum would see turnouts as low as 20, 30 percent. 
And the reality is that that isn't democracy. That's the destruction of democracy. And you will see us electing governments to rule over an entire country where most people, the vast majority of people, go, what's the point in voting? Because for a lot of people, when they've turned up that ballot box to vote in the EU referendum, that may well have been the first time they'd ever bothered well, to yeah, go and vote. Well, for many people it was, yeah. And they see the result of that. Because they don't think voting for governments changes their lives. Exactly. And over the last 40 or so years, that's been true. Yeah. Uh, but they knew that the Brexit referendum could change their lives. Exactly. And so they turned out in gigantic numbers, and then it was ignored and because they, they voted the wrong way. And they see so many MPs in, in leave-backing seats, Miss Subri being one of them, who are content to go and sit there and completely go against the views of their own constituents. So the notion, even the notion that they are willing, that MPs are there to directly represent the people who elected them, that's gone out the window. Sure, well, well, when you look at some of them, I mean, there's lots of them. Anna Sober, uh, she's better before Brexit, before <laughs> bre breakfast. Uh, uh, but but uh, Tom Watson, 68% of yep. his electors voted to leave, and he's done everything he could to block Brexit. Uh, Yvette Cooper, another mega pro-Brexit vote. Uh, and all these people said immediately after the referendum that, of course, they would implement it. Every Labour MP and every Tory MP was elected in 2017, mm. two years ago, on a promise to respect the referendum result. Now virtually none of them are respecting it. You've got a case here now where people aren't representing their own constituents who elected them and the end result that they want to deliver off the back of not representing those people is that we are trapped in an undemocratic system. It's a layer of yeah, <laughs> an yeah. affront to democracy upon an affront to democracy upon an affront to democracy and frankly I, I think people are sick of it. James Ball, who's a councillor uh, in the North, I had to suffer months of EU law and specialised in employment law. I had no idea what my own party, Labour, were talking about yesterday when they used workers' rights as the excuse not to support the deal, unless what they mean is we ain't going to win a general election. This is another fatal flaw mm. uh, in Labour's position. It presupposes the election of Conservative governments ad infinitum forever. Yeah. It completely ignores the fact that before we joined the European Union, we had lots of workers' rights. And we had them because Labour governments legislated them, and trade unions especially, fought for them. It's a total lack of confidence in themselves that they're displaying, isn't it? I think it's starting to look very, very desperate. And there's only so long that this perception of Boris Johnson as some kind of poundland dictator can really wash with a lot of people. Mm. Because they said that he wouldn't be able to go and get a deal. And he went and did that. And the idea that the first thing that Boris Johnson wants to do every single morning when he wakes up is to deliberately make people's lives worse. I know he's a terrible bloke in a lot of senses, <laughs> but I don't really believe that that is the actual case. And the idea that Boris well, Johnson... The just, idea that we'd put up with it well, if just, he did. Oh, we can vote against it. I mean, somebody said to me, you're, you're fighting for Brexit, you're going to get chlorinated chicken. I'll never eat chlorinated Just don't chicken. eat it. What, they're going to force feed us? Yeah. You're not, we're not a foie gras goose, thing. are we? You know, you can, go, you can just go and, and just do whatever you want. It's not like it's our only option, you exactly. know? And this is the thing, and presumably, if he wanted to change some piece of legislation, it would have to get through our parliament anyway. And I don't believe that the vast The chlorinated chicken bill. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> Glenn Jenkins says, George, if Remainers <laughs> achieve a second referendum with rigged Boris versus Remain question, the working class and the lumpen might adopt a Brextinction rebellion tactics. Like it. Breaking up our protests will be a different deal to hoisting off a few yoga teachers and Reiki workshop stuff. <laughs> we don't want any of that, of course. I must say the scenes of uh, 
Jacob Rees-Mogg and his 12-year-old oh, son being mobbed outside Parliament uh, by people screaming in their faces, a 12-year-old kid, yeah. uh, was one of the worst I've seen in a long time. Okay, so this, this perception, the people that voted for Brexit are some kind of gammon-faced racist that like to go out and fight other football hooligans in car parks across the country every weekend, has been shattered, okay? When was the last time that you saw, despite all the protests outside Parliament, despite the very, very, you know, high-tempo protests, and a lot of it raises the blood pressure, doesn't it? When was, when was the riot, George? When mm. was the massive riot? Mm. When was the last time that a Brexiteer really went out and, you know, took a cost to someone? We've not seen any of this, even though there's been a very, very emotionally charged yeah, debate that's been going on yeah, for a very definitely. long time. And definitely. The badges uh, are standing by. We'll come to that uh, in a minute. Um, Mike the Hedgehog says Excellent. the payment has been reduced by six billion and we will regain our fishing waters and independence at the start of 2021 better to take the deal than risk not leaving i think that's the majority of you don't you i use it a bit of analogy here if you went out for a roast dinner on a sunday right and then the meat arrived and you're waiting for all the veg and you sit there and you go right okay well, go on i'll have the carrots and the carrots come and you know that the potatoes are never coming right do you sit and you're not allowed to walk out do you sit there at what point do you just swallow it at what point do you just eat it? And that's kind of where we are right now, isn't it, really, with, look, this may not be ideal, and no-one is saying that this is ideal. I'm certainly but, not, uh, but and I, neither are you. Yeah, but I think we swallow this. The only people for whom it's ideal are, in fact, the Irish. Uh, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's better than the continuation forever of this absolute cleavage in the society and political paralysis. Yeah, because it's time, as I'm sure you want and I want, that we got on with some of the deep-seated issues yeah. in this country. Normal uh, politics. Now, before I let you go, um, of course it's election season mm. in the United States. Donald Trump is in all kinds of ways. From the start, he's been, uh, he's been caught up in the swamp that he was going to drain. Uh, they tried to fix him as a Russian agent. Now he's supposedly a Ukrainian agent, even though Ukraine is Russia's worst enemy, uh, and so on. And the yeah. candidate he defeated, Hillary Clinton, is still cluttering up the airwaves. What's your take on that? Do you think that, that Donald Trump is going to get a second term? I think if Donald Trump can deliver two things, more jobs and a, a better economy. Now, your yardstick for measuring that obviously varies, but fundamentally, I suppose, a bit more Stock money. Stock market, up. That's it, right? Then I think he's in with a shout. And the other thing I think will get him out of jail is that we're watching the left eat itself at the minute in America. This battle between some people who are relatively centrist and these ultra, ultra progressives. That is going to be an issue, and that is going to split voters, whereas Donald Trump's base <laughs> is always going to vote It's always going to be there, 40%. You might also get a third party. I mean, this attack on Tulsi Gabbard, uh, was so savage and slanderous. Uh, if they had the defamation laws yeah. there that we have here, Hillary Clinton would be a lot poorer yeah. at the end of the case. Uh, but she might now be forced to run as a third candidate. Uh, Jill Stein, the Greens, may run again. Uh, so that vote is divided. Trump's vote is solid, even if it's a minority vote. Paul in Bristol is on the line uh, on Brexit. Paul, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say... Um I, I come from Bristol, and uh, when I was a lad in uh, school, I can remember Tony Benkham past our school uh, calling for us to leave the Colin Mark, as it's called then. Yeah. And I, I, was, I, I, I left school shortly after that in 1977. And when I left school, I, I got double pay on a Sunday, time and a half before I worked. I had all the breaks, I had two breaks in the, in the morning, two breaks in the afternoon. 
We lost all, you know, since we've been in Europe, we lost all, all, all our economy. But that wasn't, Europe. that wasn't Europe that gave you that, Paul. That was the Union. Yeah, I know that, but yes, as Sarah said, but since we've been in Europe, we've lost all, all, our, all, all our kind of uh, conditions. No, we have got gained nothing from North Africa workers. Well, that, that's why the referendum went the way it did, isn't it? Because people were asked, yeah. are you happy about the last 40 years? And the, <laughs> the majority of people are not. No, no, it's ridiculous. No, uh, I know that it's only going to be turning in its grave now. I mean, I can't, you know, it's just that, you know, I just can't understand people want to be, be in, 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 in an organisation that you know, destroys workers' rights. It's when Labour are saying that, they ain't got no good, you know, Exactly. Tell that to the ASDA workers that are currently being forced to sign a new contract, a worse contract, or face the sack. Paul in Bristol, thanks. Richard in Manchester, he's up next. Go ahead, Richard. Good evening, George. Thank you for taking my call. Welcome. Uh, what a week this has been. I've been watching politics for years, and our democracy is totally tarnished now. And when I, I this morning thought Oliver Lackwin, um, half smiling in his interview on the television as though I've done my job and knowing what he has done, he does have an unfortunate smirk, does he's Sir Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> I must say. <laughs> you wouldn't want to ask him to look after anything of yours, would you? I don't think he'd get away with that smirk for long in Manchester, where this <laughs> no, call is from. Personally. Exactly. Go on, Richard. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt. It's okay. Thank you. More importantly, Jim, there's a big article today about Mendelssohn and uh, Campbell getting together. Going to take over the people's vote yeah, fund, yeah. which has really, really annoyed me. Amber Rudd's millionaire brother has been multi-millionaire, multi-millionaire uh, brother. Thanks, uh, thanks, Richard. I've got a lot of people on the line. Let me ask Patrick about that. This is a very damaging. It's two very damaging articles about Peter Mandelson in the Mail on Sunday today. One of them is this coup that Mandelson and Alistair Campbell are seeking to carry out in the People's Vote campaign, mm. richly lubricated campaign indeed. And the other is the revelation that Peter Mandelson phoned uh, Jeffrey Epstein in his prison cell to ask him to arrange a meeting between Mandelson and an American banker. Mm. And Epstein did it. He was in prison for paedophile offences. Yeah. And Lord Mandelson rang him in his cell. Yeah. Not a good day for Mandy. No, but, but doesn't this just sum it up? You've got a bloke there in Alistair Campbell who was tone deaf to the million people that marched across London streets demanding that we should not go to war with Iraq, a war that proved to be a complete folly and was, in my opinion, completely illegal. And he was deaf to that. But he thinks that, you know, several people marching on the street of London now in the name of democracy, that should be listened to. They keep inventing the numbers as well. I saw someone who had scientifically calibrated uh, the... Um, the numbers on Saturday, mm. uh, less, fewer than oh. 100,000 people. And they're now claiming that it was a million, and some are claiming it was two million. But you just have to look at the photographs to see that that's false. Yeah, exactly. But, but facts don't matter now, George. Especially, no, especially, if, you're, especially yeah. if you're on the Remain side. Exactly. <laughs> Here's Gully in the West Midlands. Go ahead, Gully. Hey, hey George. Nice to talk to you, George. You, uh, you, you, you were on the soft shoe, shoe shuffle yesterday. I understand. Yeah, George, and we, and we did actually shuffle. We did shuffle for at least an hour. We shuffled down to as far as Trafalgar. And then from Whitehall, we managed to get down to 
almost Parliament Square, and then there was no space left in Parliament Square. Mm. And then the um, the uh, the bill was passed, and uh, it started to rain. And I thought, well, look, we've done what we needed to do. We've come. Well, let, still, let me ask you something, Gully. Uh, the West Midlands voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. Uh, why, yeah. why are you in the minority on, uh, in the West Midlands? Why do you support the EU? George, you know what? Look, the thing is, not, it's not a minority majority issue as far as I'm concerned. Three and a half years later, we're more armed with the facts. And, the, and fact number one, that people are going to lose their lives or their livelihoods because of Brexit really doesn't bode well with someone like me and I think if you sit a lot of people down... Why are they going to lose their lives? Well, look, you know what, if, if on a no deal, it was on a no deal I'm talking about, if it was going to be like a no deal, but naturally if we have a deal and go through. But I think, George, today, a lot of people, given an opportunity, sit down, armed with the facts, look properly and think, mm. you know what, jobs first, the working poor comes first, yeah. so you are before that. No, I, 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 that's a perfectly legitimate uh, point of view. It's not one that's widely shared in the West Midlands, which voted almost 70% across the whole West Midlands to Brexit. And they were workers too. They care about jobs uh, too. But the only legitimate way for you now, Gully, is to support a party whose policy is to rejoin the European Union. You can't nullify my vote uh, to leave the European Union just because you've managed to delay it for three years. Do you see my point? Of course, George. And look, the thing is, we respect your vote. We respect the fact that you went to the polling booth, casted your vote, and what the way you did is up to you. But as I says, armed with the facts, George, and with a little bit of hindsight that we ha do have the passage of time mm. in our hands. Do you, know, do you know, I've said that after every general election, but it didn't stop the person who won the general election becoming the Prime Minister. <laughs> Patrick? Yeah, I just think as well, it's a question, I respect your point, don't get me wrong, but it's a question of what facts are those, because, you know, if you looked at the weather every single night and they kept telling you it was going to rain, it was going to rain, and every single day it was sunny, at what point do you just put your speedos on and go to the beach? We've had Project Fear continuously be wrong and wrong again. We'd all be outside naked fighting each other for scraps of food by now if we had it their way, and it's not the case. So I do respect your point, but I think the facts issue, unfortunately, has gone out the window when it comes to a lot of the Remain arguments. But I'm there. right in principle, I mean, I that the, they can't stop us leaving the EU because they gave us the decision to make and we made it. They can campaign to rejoin the European Union. Good luck with that, uh, Gully. I don't think there'll be many takers for that. We can leave George in an orderly fashion. Well, uh, but isn't that what the deal? Isn't that what the deal does? I mean, you said you were against no deal, but you got a deal. George, the thing is, like I said, you know, look, I have to respect the vote. Irrespective of whatever else, how I feel, I have mm. to respect the vote. Okay. And like to leave in an orderly way, people and jobs first, I can live with that. Okay. But when people suffer, I'm not prepared to put up with that. Okay, thanks very much indeed for your call. Pleasure indeed to disagree with you. Lewis is in London on the line. Lewis, go ahead. Hello there, George. Yeah. How are you, do how are you doing today? Very well, thank you very much. What would you like to say? George, what I'd like to say is this country should respect the people's vote, right? People voted to leave, and that's what should happen, yeah, right? I, I think that you've summed it up perfectly. That, it can't be any other way unless you want to take terrifying risks. Uh, I said in my very first broadcast after the referendum, if you don't implement this, you are risking social peace in the country. Because if you tell people that democracy means nothing, well, what else is there?
That's why. That's what they're saying. So if they lose, if 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 the leavers lose this vote, it's one-one. So then again, we're gonna have another fight, <laughs> isn't it, George? Best of three. <laughs> yes. So, okay, George. Yeah. My point is this: I am British, but um, I'm from the Commonwealth. Great. Right. So what happened when Europe came? It shut the doors to the Commonwealth. Exactly so, right. Yeah. So the doctors from the Commonwealth or a nurse from the Commonwealth can't come in till Europe comes. So we just want a wide party, right? Europe. Yeah. And that's, that's before, the you know that's the biggest fallacy about those on the Remain side that talk about racism on the Brexit side. Europe is an overwhelmingly white continent. We're saying there should not be freedom of movement for white people from the European Union to come here. If we need immigrants, and all the economic uh, 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 gurus say that we will, we should take them from the Commonwealth, who speak our language, who have cultural uh, interface with us going back centuries, who fought on our side exactly. in the Second World War. Uh, it seems to me screamingly obvious. It, yes, was, it, was, it was my job, Lewis, in the referendum, as Patrick knows, to maximize the number of people of Commonwealth background to vote for Brexit. And I'm proud to say 30% of them did. And if we held it again, now that things are clearer, I think that 30% would have gone up. The people who will gain most from Brexit are the people from the BME communities whose jobs have been undervalued, underpriced, put under pressure by unlimited white immigration from the European Union. Am I right? Yes, you're right. And, George, Hitler's children don't need a visa to come into a country. Even a passport, they can walk in. But the people that have helped you, we've just had that scandal of the Jamaicans that were sent from the Windrush. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So nobody stood for them because they are black. So it doesn't matter. You, right. you win the prize for the call of the night, Lewis, thank, in thank, London. Thank you, George. It's my first time phoning. I'm your big fan. Don't make it your last. Thanks very much indeed. Definitely call of the night, Patrick, don't he's you think? Gonna, he's going to take my job, isn't he? <laughs> it's fantastic. I love that. No, but he's absolutely spot on. A couple of things on that. Completely defeats the idea that a vote for Brexit is some kind of racist vote. No, absolutely not. In fact, we're more likely to see people of a smorgasbord of different colours, creeds and religions post-Brexit than we are currently. Exactly. Secondly, there is nothing wrong with reshaping your immigration system in a slightly more targeted way. Exactly. I think that makes common sense. Yeah. It, it just seems to... And also, thirdly, fundamentally, who do we really owe as a nation? A lot of the Commonwealth nations... Britain built its success off the back of its relationship, and actually, frankly, sometimes it was a very one-sided relationship, actually, with those nations. We're the ones that we owe a little bit of a leg up to here. With respect, I don't believe the same stance for a lot of EU nations. And I think it's a real shame that we've let the Commonwealth be pushed to one side in favour of an unelected, over-bureaucratic system over there in Brussels. That is, by the way, as you've rightly said, George, mostly white. Perfectly put, <laughs> as always, Patrick Christie's. Thanks for joining Thank us you. on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a quick break. Now, Syrian girl was once alleged to be a robot. In truth, she is such a dynamic young woman that she has begun to build a following all over the world. 
Syrian girl on Twitter is one of many people's first port of call for a contrary view to the prevailing orthodoxy, the prevailing Western narrative about events in Syria, in Lebanon, in the Middle East in general. I never miss or fail to retweet anything that she has ever written because I, for one, agree with it. Syrian girl is not a robot. She's Maram Suzli, and she's on Skype to talk to me and you right now. Maram, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to see you on a screen, a split screen, with me on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you very much for joining us. The pleasure is all mine. I've also been watching your tweets, and also ever since you know I was a teenager, I've been watching every activist uh, thing you've done, Galloway. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. As I always say. Uh, now, tell us this. The prevailing narrative here in this country is that the government in Damascus was the reason for many problems in the Middle East, from the uh, bad relations with our NATO ally Turkey uh, to the situation of Kurdish people uh, in Syria to the lack of democracy in Syria. That was the prevailing orthodoxy for many, many years uh, here. And that's why Western governments got away with funding and arming and propagandizing for the Al-Qaeda, ISIS, alphabet soup of uh, Islamist extremism, uh, which tried to destroy your country of Syria. That must be extremely frustrating for a Syrian like you that knows the truth. How have the last few years been for you in that regard? It's been a struggle, but I think it's that frustration that has driven me to try to educate as many people as I can about what's really happening. And, you know, it's, it's ironic that some of the same Al-Qaeda-linked groups that the U.S., the CIA, has been arming are now the ones attacking their Kurdish proxies in the northeast of Syria, um, which is, was very predictable. You know, the terrorists of the freedom fighters of today are always the terrorists of tomorrow, and they keep switching up this game. Um, so, you know, I, I would love to tell you guys about what's really happening over there now. Tell us. Go ahead. The floor is yours. Well, you know, if you've heard that Turkey is invading the northeast of Syria, and this is supposed to be uh, something that is new, but in, as a matter of fact, Turkey has already invaded the northwest of Syria, um, including Idlib province, which is under al-Qaeda control, and Afrin, which uh, was a city that had a large population of Kurds. But you never heard, like, an, such an outcry about that invasion, because the U.S. and the EU supported it. They went along with Turkey's uh, entrance into uh, Menbej in op Operation Euphrates Shield, and that is because it didn't threaten their real objective in Syria, which is not really about the Kurds. It's about controlling Syria's resources in the northeast of the country, uh, the oil fields, in fact. And this is becoming more and more obvious, even with the statements just now by Lindsey Graham and by Trump, that at least they've secured the oil fields. Trump was very clear about that. We've secured the oil, he said. 
Indeed, but it's not from lack of oil. Like the United States doesn't need that oil. What they really want is to deny Syria from possessing that oil, so that they can be unable to rebuild or or for the for the army to be unable to move. Because at the end of the day, this is not about oil. This is about protecting Israel. And Syria has always been a resistance country. It is never ever uh, stopped supporting the Palestinian cause and never will. So, you know, now they're trying to apply the divide and conquer strategy on Syria by um, trying to slice away the Northeast and they've been trying to create the Kurdistan. But the thing that people need to understand is that, you know, uh, there's this uh, theme that, you know, the, the Kurdish autonomy is something that sometimes on the left is supported. But in the Northeast of Syria, Kurds are not a majority. And it's not, not so much like a Palestinian cause, but far more like a second Israel in the region that they're trying to create. Of course, Kurdish people have rights and they have been denied in many places, not Syria, as much as across the border in Turkey, uh, which has massacred Kurds on a huge scale, whilst remaining a member of NATO and a candidate member of the European Union. Well, there is definitely a history of, uh, you know, Kurds being suppressed and, uh, you know, perhaps denied uh, civil rights as well as citizenship rights. That is uh, historically very accurate. But as we also know, uh, the Israel was built on a mythology of victimhood. And we are seeing the same people sell us the same uh, line to, in order to create Kurdistan when, you know, as a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, it's, it's just like a second Israel. For example, you know, they want to take the res they want to build an ethno state. They want to build it uh, whilst denying the majority of people, the minority of, uh, and giving the majority of people the resources for those majority to a minority of people, which is exactly what happened with Israel. And not only that, but in regions where the, the, eth the indigenous ethnic people of that land are being denied their history, and that history is stolen. For example, the Assyrian people of North uh, Iraq and of Northeast Syria um, are being denied their historical claims to the areas that they live in by the Kurdish autonomous nationalist movement that the left is supporting. They're having the, the names of their cities changed. Ain al-Arab to Qobani, Qamishli to Qamishlo. They're being pushed off their land. They're, they're being disarmed, the militias. Um, I mean, this is another Israel in the sense that it's in order to create this ethno state called Kurdistan in Syria and North Iraq, what has had to happen is the ethnic cleansing of other minorities that happen not to be Kurdish, such as the Assyrian Christians and Arabs. So um, that is what we have been fighting now. And of course, you know, the same individuals that sold us Israel, Noam Chomsky, Bernie Sanders, you know, these people that were in kibbutz when they were young, sold us Israel with the same idea that it was going to be a socialist democratic nation. And as a matter of fact, it's once again an ethnostate supported by empire, because that's what the empire always does. They balkanize the Middle East and tries to divide them based on ethnicity or religion. And, and this is no different at all. Um, if you looked at the history of the Kurdish people, 
you know, the reason why Sykes-Picot did not grant them a state is because historically, since World War I, they have always been nomadic. And as a result, they never built a city or, um, you know, had some settlements that they could say, well, this is, you know, Kurdistan. That is why they never had a nation state. But now they want to, you know, um, carve out what used to be Armenia, Assyria and Syria into to creating one. Um, and that's why Israel is so supportive of that, because they agree, they wholeheartedly agree that this would be a second Israel in the region. Um, and not to mention the fact that, you know, the east of Turkey, as much as Turkey has punished the Kurdish people, uh, they at the same time, you know, the Kurdish people, well, not the people as a whole, but Kurds did participate in the Armenian genocide and ethnically cleansed much of northeast, uh, uh, sorry, of East Turkey. So, you know, th this victimhood story, it, it, this, uh, you know, they have to have a nation state here and uh, let's create an ethnic majority here. And the whole idea of Arabs shouldn't be allowed to move into northeast Syria because that would threaten the demography. Like, it is all a second Israel. The, the situation is that the Syrian people own all of Syria. You know, it belongs to all of Syrians. So whether you're a Kurdish or Arab or a Syrian, you should be able to live in any region of Syria, and there should be no partition. The oil belongs to every Syrian. And the, the, the most awful part is, even the Kurdish militias right this very moment are willing to give up territory to Turkey where Kurds live, not to protect them, but because the U.S. has promised them a stake in the oil fields. And so the only hope at the moment to protect the, the uh, ethnic groups in the northeast of Syria is the Syrian army. They're the only ones who actually care. Madam, uh, I've got quite a lot of calls coming in, so stay on the line and help me uh, answer the callers, if you will. Alan is in London. Alan, welcome. Hi, hello. Yes, go ahead. How's it going? Yes, good, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. For, thank you. For being here. Yeah, I just want to say um, to the Syrian girl, like, I'm Kurdish, and I personally want Syria to be united right now. I do not want another Iraqi Kurdistan, because I think one is more, more, more than, than enough, and she is correct in, in, in the past. Uh, we have taken taken part in in in, in crimes, you know, in in, in 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 massacres, just as many people also have done in, in in our past. We have done so. So, I myself have no interest in creating another Kurdistan. But what I want to say is, in Syria right now, I think that um, it's important to know that the Kurds who have been there have done a lot of decent stuff in a way. For example, when they did fight against ISIS, they did spend more than two years, they were the force fighting back jihadis, as opposed to any other force. They also were sealing the border to prevent more jihadis flowing through from other places. And I personally would like, I would very much want the Syrian government to take over the regions that the Kurdish people have right now in terms of the, the whole coalition of the, the SDF, which has got some Arabs as well and, and Kurdish forces and, and Arab forces. 
I want the Syrian government now to take over those places because personally, as a Kurd, I would rather see this war end. And a lot of places, the Kurds, they have made that choice. In Manbij, in Kobani, in Karmishli, even in parts of Raqqa, in, um, in many places, in Hatska governance and stuff, the Kurds have decided, they said, no, we'll make the deal with the Syrian government instead of allowing Turkey to occupy these places. Okay, so, Alan, uh, thanks uh, very much for that. Max is in Surrey. He served as a soldier in Syria. Let's hear that one. Max. Hi, chaps. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, George wants to say, great for calling out David Lammy about his expenses. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Especially his season <laughs> yeah, ticket for Tottenham Hotspur. Oh, absolutely. The taxpayer no, paying for I wish the taxpayer had paid my season ticket at Celtic Park oh, well, for 20 back, years. <laughs> Go <laughs> ahead. No, I just want to say, so um, I'm an army officer and I have served in Syria uh, a few years ago uh, as an advisor. Uh, but I want, to, I want to say thank you to Syrian Girl because you were actually painting a more accurate narrative. Um, but what, what I wanted to say was, if you, I mean, Assad himself, he's an Alawite, which is a, a, yeah. a branch of Shia Islam. Uh, most of his troops are Sunni. So the idea that this kind of everyone hates Assad is completely wrong, as, as Syrian does correctly stated all the time. One of the other things I wanted to mention, how when I was out, that honor is very important among the, in the Middle East as, as a cultural factor. And one of the things people are forgetting is the Kurds allied with Israel. They made a promise to Israel to, to weaken the South. And in return, Israel will support their, their claim to have their own state. But then Israel turned their backs on them and no, nothing happened. There was no outcry in the media. But as soon as Syrian correctly pointed out, as soon as Turkey invades the North, the media's completely upset about this. Yeah, so, and, uh, I mean, uh, of course, Max, the very jihadists that are the vanguard of the Turkish invasion are the very people that we have been uh, describing as moderate opposition and giving them guns and money, am I right? Absolutely. So one of the biggest problems we had out there was the fact that when you were encounter encountering these uh, fundamentalist people, they weren't running around with bad quality Klashnikov. They had American weapons, which were very, very effective at what they do. And we found that a problem. So it, it just, it was bizarre that these extremists who live in the desert had M16s and American tanks. I think that's a brilliant that's call, uh, Max. A really brilliant call. Uh, only for the hour, I must uh, ask Maram to uh, respond and to uh, Adam Bray any further points she'd like to do before we lose the line. Maram, go ahead. The floor is yours again. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, w the callers are right. You know, Kurds are a... Uh, Syrian Kurds who have Syrian citizenship are every part of Syrian society and should be so. And, of course, you know, uh, people who are resisting the occupation of their country, whether they be Kurdish or any other ethnicity, that is something that I greatly respect. And their honor is very important in our region. And it's not just the fact that they were collaborating with Israel. Uh, so the, the, the Kurdish militias do not represent all Kurds. And they haven't been helpful to certainly Syrian Kurds in the northwest of Syria. So if, you know, it's, it is about honor. So what, where is the honor in collaborating with not only Israel, but the US and UK occupation of your own country and allowing them to take over the oil resources and while you're, the rest of the country starve, 
with a fuel shortage. You know, what is the honor of assassinating uh, people who are fighting ISIS, like the Assyrian militias, um, or forcibly disarming them because they don't agree with your separatist agenda? So this is not loyalty. This is not honor. And I don't think it represents Syrian Kurds, as your caller said. You know, people are loyal to their country, and we shouldn't just brush them all with this SDF or YPG stroke. And I hope I have not, haven't run out of time. No, no, you haven't. And I want to ask you one last question. Uh, not that many years ago, uh, I was sat in Beirut, uh, and there was, uh, unlike when I first went there in the 1970s, uh, relative calm. There's no calm in Beirut this evening. What's going on in Lebanon? You know, actually, it is uh, a bit of a confusion for everyone at the moment. It, there was a WhatsApp law introduced where they wanted to tax WhatsApp, and I believe it was uh, introduced by Hariri's government. And this is a, a corruption that has been, you know, rampant in Lebanon, and people have been sick of it. The only risk is that some nefarious uh, forces are going to try to exploit legitimate grievances inside Lebanon. And you can already kind of see that in the Western media, trying to make this about, uh, you know, Hezbollah, people being against Hezbollah or uh, Amal, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but at the end of the day, this is uh, against corruption, but we'll have to see where it goes from here. I'm deeply grateful to you for your appearance this evening, but especially for your presence on social media, which has frankly uh, done more uh, to counter the hostile narrative than any official source uh, from Damascus. You have perfectly crystallized the case of the Syrian nationalists, the Syrian resistance to uh, hegemony in the area, resistance to imperial domination and interference and so on. How did you get into all of this? Actually, you know, I've been an anti-war activist. I was, uh, since I was a teenager, I opposed the Iraq war. I watched you, uh, you know, give your testimony in front of the United States and you smoked your cigar. And I, you know, I was there from the beginning. And so this, I always knew that it would come to Syria eventually. And that's when I chose to be a public person. And I had my first interview with a small YouTuber called Morris108, who unfortunately passed away recently. But um, thank you so much. Like, I don't really, I don't like to make it about me. I'm just a person, just a girl in her room. You know, I just, I want the truth to be told. And, uh, you know, the, 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 at the end of the day, this is about resistance. This is about Palestine and the occupations of our nations and the death of people. And unfortunately, this is, you know, something that affects the entire world. And I just hope that I can be a little bit of truth out there. It's, uh, it's not about you, about Syria and its people are lucky to have you. How do people follow you? You are a Syrian girl, is it partisan girl on Twitter? Where else can people uh, watch and listen to you? Sure, um, I have a YouTube channel, Syrian Girl Partisan, and I have a Facebook, which is uh, Partisan Girl as well, I believe. I'm working on a website, but I haven't made it yet. Well, let so. us know when you do, and we'll uh, promote it uh, on here. 
I'm very proud of you, madam. Really, sincerely, Thanks. very proud of you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. She was very impressive, Adam, wasn't Quite she? Quite so, very much. Uh, and we just never hear that side of the story. Partly, largely, overwhelmingly largely, because uh, our own media don't want us to hear that side of the story. But also, let's be uh, honest, uh, the other side of the story isn't always put quite as clearly and as attractively as she put it. Yes. And uh, I think that that is a major uh, failing. If Syria had, you know, an English language television station staffed by people like her, they'd actually do very well because actually Syria is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious haven for Christians. Uh, a place where men and women freely mix, where you can go into a restaurant and there are women at every table and some people drink alcohol, some people don't. And it's actually a very attractive society, leaving aside political questions. Yes. As a society, uh, the idea that it should be ruled by Wahhabis uh, from the Torah Bora, which was the Western policy, uh, was uh, a deeply disquieting one to those that know the area. Well, what's quite ironic about this, and again, leaving politics aside, Syria was one of the most civilized places on earth long before some of the places today, which are still bereft with barbarism, were anything to speak of. And at a cultural level and at a human level, it's been so horrific that a totally unnecessary war has threatened and in some cases destroyed this cultural heritage, has taken thousands upon thousands of lives. And now a country which, because of various political leadership issues wasn't quite as far ahead economically as it could have been and should have been. Now, instead of talking about how to take development ahead, they're talking about redevelopment and rebuilding, all because of a war that had no purpose, no meaning, no legitimate cause and should never have happened in the first place. Quite so. Uh, now, lots of uh, Ask Adams and uh, a lot of people, still huge numbers tonight, asking about the Brexit uh, yes. issue. Uh, King Zog asks, <clears throat> who was King Zog? Was he the, the he was the Afghan uh, king, or was it the Al was he the Albanian king? Well, those who was King Zog. Well, maybe he should phone in and let us know. <laughs> it reminds me a bit of Zadok the priest, but that's what they play there at was, the coronation. Honestly, there was a King Zog. Was it Libya? Was it Albania? Uh, anyway, Albania. It was. King Zog asks, if the customs union amendment is passed, don't we have to go to an immediate election? Well, of course, how to get an immediate election is the uh, problem uh, at the moment. But a customs union amendment passing negates leaving the European Union, doesn't it? Well, You're actually better being in the European Union than being in a customs union with it. Because well, you're bound by all their rules and have no say in the drawing up of those rules. If someone were to ask me those two things, it would be a bit like having raw Brussels sprouts before the arsenic or just after. It's not really a decision I want to put myself through because, as you rightly say, one is, they're both, it's remain versus remain. Now, the problem with these amendments that Burko and his gang of obstructionists are going to try to push through is that they are remarkably similar to the amendments that were thrown at Theresa May a few months before she fell on her sword. Now, 
while all of these amendments, which individually are popular among cliques of the, of the dysfunctional opposition, couldn't command a majority, a straightforward majority in the House of Commons. And in any case, it just shows the contempt that these people have. And it's a bit like how you said about Julian Assange. For years, they said that people who claimed that he would be whisked away to a dungeon and torturous environment awaiting an American-style execution, they said such people were conspiracy theorists, were foreign agents, were lunatics, and they said similar things, if not the same, to people who said, those who say, we just don't want a no deal, that was a code word for we don't want Brexit at all. That theory, that conspiracy theory even, is now the abject reality. These amendments are designed to destroy Brexit. Just when this seed was germinating and one could hear the, the faint rings of George Harrison singing, here comes the sun, I say that because we were both just in Liverpool, out comes the acid rain of these amendments to squash any hope of even an imperfect deal that would result in an imperfect Brexit down to the ground because all these people want to do is stay in the European Union. The love for such a corrupt, tyrannical and racist organization is frankly absolutely beyond it's the pale. utterly bamboozling. Ian Puddick, a good friend of the show, says, is there any way that Parliament can sneak in a second referendum? Well, that relates to the previous question. It's part of these amendments. And that, the answer to that, though, is even more convoluted than the answer to the first, because even if this, this wretched House of Commons could agree on holding a second referendum, which I don't incidentally think they can, for the same reason I don't think they'll agree to this Customs Union Brino Amendment, what is the question going to be? How many questions are there going to be? How many answers are there going to be? If anyone thinks that this Parliament, divided as it is, could agree on how to phrase a second referendum, I think that they've got another thing coming, but I don't Luckily, and I hope I'm right on this, I could be wrong because we're living in bizarro land, to say the least, but I just don't see any option for a second referendum commanding majority. It will be tight-ish, but I think that ultimately it won't command a majority. Now, Jared's on the line from Pennsylvania. Always welcome, Jared. Go ahead. Hello, uh, George, and hello, Adam. Good evening. Uh, always great to talk to you. Thank you. Um, it's um, pretty interesting what's going on in the UK. Um, <laughs> uh, I thought my politics in America was crazy with Donald Trump <laughs> and all this um, hubbubaloo there. But in, it's pretty in the UK, crazy. It it's like, pretty crazy here, yeah. I, I, I always say, like, you know, well, at least we're not those guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, go ahead. Anyway, I want to get to my, my question. Yeah. Um, you brought up World War II um, quite a bit, yeah. and in the context, you always bring up Europe. And in Europe, uh, Russia did do most of the fighting in World War II yeah. for uh, the European theater. However, why is it that when people bring up World War II, they never bring up the Pacific War, yeah. and specifically for uh, the, the men and, um, who fought and died in the Pacific? My grandfather was a Marine who joined the U.S. Uh, Marines in 1940 when Roosevelt issued uh, his, um, his draft. And uh, he fought in Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima. 
with the, you know, the famous photo of the uh, Americans lifting the flag. And uh, it seems like they never get any of the attention that uh, Europe seems to get, which makes no sense because the Japanese were just as brutal, if not even more so, than the, uh, the Germans yes. in World War II. And, and there was British soldiers who fought there. Yeah, I, I was just about to say that. Uh, this is true and was true in the war itself uh, of even in this country, the British forces that were fighting in the, on the Pacific front. Uh, the, the forgotten war was how the British struggle in Burma against Japanese occupation was uh, described. Adam. Well, but Peter Hitchens, in his latest book, The Phony Victory, talks a great deal about the shameful abandonment of Singapore, which eventually led to the full-scale abandonment of all British interests in Southeast Asia and East Asia more widely because of an obsession with Europe and the near Mediterranean region, El Alamein, which was a harrowing battle, but one of very little strategic importance, great emotional importance, but Singapore parents fought in it. Indeed. Um, and Singapore, though strategically, would have been much more important, but there was a kind of lethargy that had already set in in Britain at the time. And in America, it's almost more perplexing because Britain, after all, is a country near to the continent of Europe. Some people don't think the British Channel should exist. Uh, they, were, they were harassing a 12-year-old boy whose father happens to be an MP just a few days ago. But the United States, its own territory, well, Hawaii, but it became one of the 50 states, it was directly attacked by an unprovoked Japanese act of aggression. And even in the United States, I think that the media and the academic industrial complex tends to talk about Europe a bit more. The I mean, saving Private Ryan was... Was, was about the European theatre. Indeed so, as indeed. And there were, I mean, the Sands of Iwo Jima with John Wayne. There have been films, but they're, they're, they're dwarfed in terms of the sheer numbers versus the films and the books that talk about Europe. I suppose in the United States, it's because most of the people in America, especially after 1945, were of some sort of European heritage. So perhaps they could relate to the experiences of the indigenous European populations of Europe more more than they could the indigenous Asian populations of the Philippines in America's case, or Singapore and Malaya and Burma in Britain's case. But it's frankly a mark of shame because what Japan did during that war to the Chinese, to the Filipinos, to the Malays, the Singaporeans, the Burmese, it was a kind of violence hitherto unknown. To the Chinese, they. they massacred people in China. It was one of the greatest war crimes and one of the greatest attempts at serious ethnic cleansing that the world has ever seen. China lost nearly 20 million people in the Second World War. More How people than anyone that? other than the USSR. That's yeah. absolutely right. Um, China certainly knows about it, but I think in the West there has been a great deal of negligence. And I think that it's, it's quite troubling, especially now that China's become the new Russia in the eyes of who's going to be the bogeyman with nuclear weapons. I think that maybe if people realized the supreme Chinese sacrifice against the Japanese during that war, they might have a slightly better perspective on why China is proud of how far it's come since being a crushed country, a divided country, and, inv and an invaded country, to now being a country that has alleviated more poverty than any country 
Australian history. It also casts an extremely long shadow that most people don't know about it on the Korean Peninsula because, of course, the Japanese fascist rape of the Korean Peninsula was of such a scale uh, that it partly explains the nature of the, the regime in uh, PDRK, in the north of Korea. Not just the north, but also the south. And this is under a very peace-minded president, the current president, Moon Jae-in. Japan and South Korea have downgraded their trading ties because South Korea wants a full-scale apology for the horrific occupation of Korea. And, um, and, and Japan won't do it. And Japan won't do it. Uh, there was something that the Japanese during this war were known for called comfort girls, which were essentially slaves used as prostitutes. And Korean women suffered terribly because of this. Hundreds and, of thousands of them. Yes, indeed. And the, it's, it's a tragic story, but the only silver lining for someone interested in peace in Korea, and you and I have talked about that a lot, is that what one is seeing Seoul and Pyongyang agree to a degree that there's got to be some level of accountability with Japan. And the current Japanese Prime Minister Abe, who's certainly on the more nationalistic side of Japanese politics, he's done something which is maybe a sign that he doesn't want this Korean unification to be too anti-Japanese, even though there are, there's an historical antecedent for why that might be. He has, in the fairly recent past, offered an unconditional meeting, no strings attached, with Kim Jong-un, which no Japanese leader would have done to any of the Kim family before. Mm. So in this sense, the South and the North have a, a similar position because they have a totally shared history. It's the division that's artificial, yeah, the yeah. suffering they shared. Jared, last word to you. Yeah, I, I just feel like, like the, the Pacific um, was just as important of a struggle yes. just for liberation movements in places like just Korea, Indonesia, Vietnam, and uh, uh, the Japanese were just going to come in and um, replace uh, a European colonial power with their own, even though they tried to paint themselves as liberators in mm. the propaganda. They always do. But, invaders uh, always invaders do. always do, Jared. Uh, Jared, thanks uh, for that call. The hour is marching. I'll tell you. Uh, uh, a funny story in a way, uh, a late friend of mine, very good friend of mine, was the uh, biggest dealer of Japanese cars in Kent. And he used to look at the television schedules every Christmas. And if he found that Bridge Over the River Kwai was going to be shown, as in those days it almost always was. Wonderful film, by the way. Great film. If he saw it on the television schedule, he knew that the bottom would fall out of his Japanese car sales for How the next few weeks. There was a direct relationship to that film, uh, which was fictional, of course, but accurately described the horrors of Japanese imperialism in the Second World War and before it uh, yes. in China. Uh, it, it had a devastating effect on his business. People didn't want to buy Japanese cars when they'd seen that, uh, that movie. Let's take a quick break. Uh, Vahagen Diamandopoulos says partisan girl spouts a bunch of racist BS about Kurdish people and cannot be trusted to provide an accurate view of their situation. Definitely not a fan of the YPG, but there are way better people to have on than 
her. Well, give us a call. You know the number. Uh, get your point of view uh, across to the audience. The controversialist says, hmm, another example of a well-known individual on the left abandoning the people of Syria and espousing genocide by a brutal dictator. These are repugnant views that George Galloway is espousing. Well, they're the views I've always espoused, so if they're so repugnant to you, I'm not sure why you're watching and listening. And above all, not phoning, because you can come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. There is nothing that you know about Syria that I don't know, and there is nothing about where I stand on Syria that I'm not happy, ready, anxious to defend. I will always be proud of the stand that I made with the Syrian Arab Republic. I would have been proud of it even if we had lost. I'm especially proud of it now that we have won. Irish Rebel says, I wish you would speak the whole truth. Trump is moving a thousand troops to Iraq and Saudi Arabia. You are as disgusting as Clinton for your misleading information. Goodness, that's pretty disgusting. Uh, you are as corrupt as them. That would be difficult. You only speak half-truths because you think your little strategy will work. Well, thanks for watching, anyway. Uh, Ari says, why don't you get a Kurd to talk about Kurds? L-M-F-A-O, which I think is a rude uh, collection I think of so. letters. Instead, you've invited a woman who has wished death upon all Syrian Kurds before. Well, she certainly didn't wish death on them this evening, and I am an avid follower of her output, and I have never seen her wish death on Syrian Kurds. Uh, but it's good that you're listening or watching, Ari. You could always, of course, ring if you had the courage to put up more than uh, your slanderous bluster. Uh, Liam Ryan, good man, top friend of the show in Ireland, asks, does Rodrigo Duterte want a truce with the New People's Army? Is he a unifier? You're the expert on the Philippines. Well, Duterte has given them several offers of a disarmament pact before, and he's got a great legacy of doing something similar with the religious extremists in Mindanao. The Moro Islamic Liberation Front have been brought into the fold, and an autonomous parliament, which is far better than the moronic presidential system they've got in Manila, which I pray to God Duterte abolishes, is now in action. And it's giving people in Mindanao something that the Spanish didn't give them, something the Americans didn't give them, something that every previous Filipino president didn't give them, and that's autonomy. Now, the NPA is an ideological extremist group as opposed to an ethno-religious one. So for them, it's not a matter of autonomy, because an ideology only has autonomy in a vacuum, not in the real world. Uh, this group, however, is in a strange alliance considering their ideology, with uh, liberals, CIA-minded infiltrators who are never far from the heart Filipino politics. They haven't been since the CIA was established. And they've made a gamble. Rather than giving up and joining the family of man, they've decided to throw their lot in with the people who are the Clintonites of the Philippines and of Southeast Asia more widely. And until, so long as they continue to do that, they'll be treated as the prescribed terrorist organization that they've been since the late 60s in the Philippines.
There's a legend on the line. It's Norma, and she's cross with me. So I must go immediately to her. Norma, welcome. The first welcome. one to have a go, because she's hard enough. <laughs> she's definitely hard enough. Norma, welcome. Hello. It's Adam. It's Adam as well. Yes, yes. Good evening, Adam's Norma. right next to me, yes. Well, you're talking about the violence in Japan in the Pacific War. Yeah. And I just wanted to put a bit of balance, because... How many millions of civilians were killed by the atom bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I mean, that was 75 years ago, I think. But there's never been an apology from America. Well, Japan and, uh, launched an aggressive war against the United States. It wouldn't norm be normal for the victim of that aggressive war to apologize to the perpetrators of it, would it? Well, I don't know. I mean, there were millions of... Civilians were killed by the atom bombs. Uh, probably and, not uh, quite millions, but uh, hundreds were, of thousands. Hundreds yeah, yeah. of thousands. And yeah. of course, the impact of those atomic bombs continues to be felt until this day uh, in the maternity wards, disabled children, uh, and uh, so on. So yeah. you're right, uh, the bombardment, not by one, but by two atomic bombs by the United States. Uh, Adam, it had more to do with terrifying the Soviet Union, uh, did it not, than actually being a legitimate uh, military tactic, the dropping of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. Well, yes, Japan was about to surrender. It had zero tactical purpose at all, which is a sort of theme, a bit like the firebombing of Dresden. It was essentially doing something that risked grossly disproportional violence against civilians with a very minimal strategic purpose. I think that it was a total shame that the atomic bombs were dropped. I'm, I'm the opposite of a fan of FDR. I think his domestic policies were crippling to long-term economic growth and freedom in the U.S., but he was a gentleman, to be sure, and something of an aspiring scholar, where Harry Truman was sort of one line of cocaine away from a Bush-type figure. I think if FDR had lived, he would have never done something like that, where the simpleton Truman, and I mean that in the worst possible way, dropped those bombs on very bad advice from fanatics. It was absolutely devastating, and as anyone who heard the last 10 minutes of this show will know, I'm not just against Japanese aggression, in the Pacific, but I abhor it, as do many friends of mine in China. But dropping those bombs, which slaughtered civilians with no real military importance, was absolutely unnecessary, and it was, frankly, a total disgrace. If those bombs weren't dropped, perhaps zero atomic or nuclear weapons would have been dropped. Instead, two were, and it's really a, it's a stain on humanity. Norma, last word to you. Well, I just wanted to put a bit of balance. Yeah, you've done annoyed. that. You've done that, and we. And I'm going to get my back, George. I, I look forward to that. You are one of the longest-serving MOPS <laughs> graduates, and I'm deeply oh, grateful yes. to you for that. Right from the very beginning, the legend that is Norma in Bristol is going to get a badge. If you email me, uh, you'll get yours at my expense, Norma. So it's info at georgegalloway.com. Now, Albert is in Hawaii, the aforementioned Hawaii. Albert, welcome. Hey, how are you? Good, good. We were hi, just talking hi, about George, your state you? earlier. Oh, really? Yeah, we were talking about Pearl Harbor, the Japanese aggression, and so on. Oh, yeah. Anyway, go right. on. That's well, not what let you me make called a, for. Yeah. Well, let me make a, a, a comment about what you were talking about 
this previously with with World War II before I get to my other comment. Yeah. One of the things that I like to stress, because I minored in history in college, and is the history that isn't taught or the history that isn't known for people. Mm -hmm. So when you look at World War II, specifically the Pacific War, there's a lot that isn't discussed about the Pacific War. For example, you mentioned Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. What no one talks about or what very few people talk about are Tokyo and the bombing of Tokyo and what, what happened there and the horrific aspects of that on the populace there. Um, so a lot, a lot of history of World War II is really just never discussed, never talked about. The main thing I wanted to discuss, and also uh, one more thing I wanted to bring out is a lot of the attitude toward World War II, especially in the West, is the continued sort of what I call neo-imperialist, neo-colonial racist framework. And I think that's a, responsible for a great deal of why there's a lot of ignorance when it comes to the Pacific War and other aspects. Now, the other comment I wanted to make was about Brexit. Mm. And my feeling about Brexit is that my view has been that the reason why there hasn't been a deal up until supposedly now with Brexit is I believe the people, the powers that be, that put this on as a referendum did not expect there to be a no vote mm -hmm. or what I call a next. <laughs> you you, you bet. And the other aspect would be the pro-vote or the Brexit, as I call it. So Brexit and Nexit. And so they didn't expect the British populace, the UK populace, to vote against uh, the EU and to come out of the EU. And they, so they deliberately did not have a deal set up. If they really wanted a deal, if they really believed this was going to be on the table, if they really thought there would be an actual Brexit, they would have had a deal ready and waiting. They would have had plans ready and waiting. This is why I believe partly there has not been one. This was all deliberate. They did not expect there to be a no, well, no vote. You're to, all, the way, uh, all, all the way in Hawaii. You've got that bang on. Absolutely correct. Albert in Hawaii, thank you very much for the call. Chris in Colchester, up next. Go ahead, Chris. Hi. Um, yeah, just after everything... Everything's told he's done this week, this last week. I just wonder why would you still support Bernie Sanders, this tied old warmonger, when uh, he co-sponsored the bill in Libya that led to the invasion? Well, uh, she's got a better foreign policy than him. He's got a better domestic policy than her. But above all, I support Bernie Sanders because he has a chance to win the presidency. And Tulsi Gabbard, in my view, does not have a chance to win the presidency. She's on about 2% and he's on about 25%. It's really as simple as that. I'm not making uh, a value judgment uh, between the two as much as I'm making an electability judgment. I think that Bernie Sanders, for the blue-collar, working-class, middle-class American, would be uh, the best uh, Democratic Party president that we could have. And moreover, most especially, I think he can win it. Adam. Well, in that comment, it's very interesting because you clearly know what a lot of people don't, which is that middle class means something completely different in, America, in the yeah. US than it does in Britain. Um, but um, well, well my, my own view is that 
I think Trump is going to win. I think that more strongly every month. But I also hope he's going to win. I think he's got more work left to be done. My favorite Democrat, and I do have one, is Andrew Yang. I think he's got some fresh ideas. He's rejected all of the identitarian nonsense. And he talks about a forward-looking economic program that, well, so I don't agree with all of the parts, mainly because of my strict monetary views. If he could pull off what he wants to do fiscally with my monetary views, it could be a match made in heaven. But I like the man. I like his thinking. And so if it were a, if it were a match between Trump and Yang, I could just, you know, go to the uh, rain-soaked Brighton beach of an American November winter, and I wouldn't care who would win because I'd be happy either way. But I don't think that Yang is going to get the ticket. Chris, last word to you, sir. <clears throat> uh, yeah, well... You know, it's about me, for me, it's about principles. Um, I'm sure Tony Blair might have a better chance than Jeremy Corbyn or someone mm. like him. Mm. Um, but I would never support a mass murderer who supported... I don't um, think you can describe Bernie Sanders as a mass murderer. I can, because he supported sanctions on Iraq even after hundreds of thousands... Yeah, but he opposed, the war, he opposed the war on Iraq, which Tony Blair did not. He only carried, because Bush he carried was, it out. And then, then he supported funding the war in Iraq even after Abu Ghraib. Um, he, he, only he was only against it because it was a Republican war. He supported the war in Libya, the, the war in Syria. He supported the, the war in Yemen. Only changed after mm. Trump. He, mm. he does what the Democrats do, whereas Tulsi Gabbard sticks to principles. And well, that's what I'm interested in. Which part of our principles cause her to be so infatuated with the Indian Prime Minister Modi, uh, who's presiding over the creation uh, of an ethno-state uh, murdering people, marginalizing people, torturing people all over India. Sikh people, Muslim people, people in Kashmir. Why is Tulsi Gabbard so enamored of Mr. Modi if she's the principled character you describe her as? Well, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that one, but I mean, that, that conflict's <laughs> been going back for a long time. Uh, I wouldn't blame it completely on Tulsi. Well, I'm not but, blaming it know, at all her, on her, but I know that no. she is completely infatuated with Modi. She is yeah. the most pro-Modi politician in the United States. So uh, you painted her as a paragon of almost unblemished virtue, only to discover no. that you actually agree with me on what is a pretty significant blemish. No, no, I didn't say that. I said, she's the, for me, she's the best of the worst. Um, no, but I, you thought know, you didn't no agree with, I thought you didn't agree she's with no that Ron approach. <laughs> no, I would you not said you don't agree with that. You said you don't agree with that. Well, you, but, I mean, it's pretty, Modi's a pretty destructive guy, and she's his biggest fan. I'm not it's saying that. I, I praised her to the skies in my opening uh, remarks. It's you that's forcing me uh, to uh, uncover some of the blemishes. Look, because of the hour, Chris, I need to press on. Call back next week, and we'll discuss this further, yeah? George is in California on the very same subject. George, welcome. Hey, very cool. Thanks for having me on, Uncle George. And Always Captain Adam, I really appreciate you guys. You guys are Thank over you. the top. Thank cool. you. Thank you so much. Very cool. Hey, yeah, all my love and blessings. Hey, so dig this. Uh, this is just a bit of feedback uh, uh, regarding Tulsi, of course, in the Clinton thing. Yeah, right? What an, what an outrageously cool thing. <laughs> I just got to applaud all of it, like, over the top. Thank you, Miss Hillary. Yeah, um, so, I mean, yeah. it's actually going to do Tulsi some good, isn't it? 
Oh, over the top. I mean, probably uh, unfathomable, uncalculable right now for me. I couldn't calculate the uh, the extent of this. We'll have to see till you know, come Monday and Tuesday, right, when everybody gets back to work, you know. It's bound to have helped our fundraising. Oh, gosh. Uh, and, and no I mean, one's going to touch like, it now. Like... It, would be, it would be like Tony Blair launching uh, yet another uh, root and branch attack on me. It could only be, it could, it could only be good for me. <laughs> exactly. That's a perfect uh, comparison analogy. Totally. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Why did she I, do I, it, Hillary? Was it just a moment of madness or was there method in her madness? Oh, I think there was, the, I think it was just from the place of what you, what we call in my circles is, uh, it's kind of like, it's pretty core. It's just kind of a spiritual, uh, deep truth of the governing power of illumined love, which has to do with the integrity of being that really knows no, it really knows no boundaries of time and space. It's like, a, it's like a Tai Chi master. I'm not saying she is this. I'm just saying this can erupt at any moment. And the Tai Chi master just can suddenly be on the other side of the room kind of thing, right? Beyond time and space. Uh, that's not why I called to talk about that's that. Okay, go ahead. This is, yeah, I just want to, I'm glad you asked that, though. I could, I could say such a thing on the air. Thank you. Okay. So let well, me just Clinton share with you my in the my same thing. sentence is a bit controversial, but <laughs> anyway. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. It was, it was, you asked the question if she was, uh, if it was uh, deliberate or not. I'm just saying it's way beyond yeah, what you, anyway, yeah, yeah. the boundaries of time. So I want to say this, just in case her team is listening, and I'm sure people, uh, you know, her, her campaign wagon, you know this, and you've already said it a few times. I just want to back this up if anyone's listening for Telsey. Of course, we all know her, her standalone integrity of being regarding foreign policy and ending regime wars. She can get off that. I know you'll agree. I know Adam would agree, too. It's time for her to just set that aside. We've all known it. You can sound like a broken record. She must do not so much what Bernie's doing, but like you said a minute ago, she has to come clear on foreign, on, excuse me, domestic, domestic policy, policy, infrastructure, yeah. Yeah. infrastructure, getting the black vote, getting some people, more people of color on her team, right? I mean, just, you know, I mean, just for the wisdom of that, of getting... You know, the, the, she got a she got a game in the black book. And if Bernie, if Bernie wins, takes this because he is he's way above her. Of course, we'll vote for Bernie. But if he chose her as a VP, huh? Right? Or Secretary of State? That's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at. That's what you're. Yeah. Well, it's a very good call. I appreciate it very much out there in California. This is a very good one, Adam. Raymond Deloney says, "What's your view on the lack of an inquest?" for Don Sturgis. Now, some listeners, especially overseas, may not know who Don Sturgis is, was. She is the one person who was killed by the so-called Novichok uh, attack in Salisbury. We are told, although there are no charges against anyone, no warrant for anyone's arrest on the very peculiar death of this poor, unfortunate Lady Don Sturgis. But it is the right of any Englishman or woman to have an inquest into any strange, unexplained, sudden death. The only person other than Don Sturgis in the last several hundred years to be denied an inquest is Dr. David Kelly and Don Sturgis. Now, what does that tell you? 
That tells you the government doesn't actually want you to know how they actually died. So much do they not want you to know. They abolish an ancient right of centuries of people in this country to have an inquest into their death. What good reason can there be for the British state to decide that Don Sturgis gets an inquest into how she died? I suppose the best answer to that question is, if one's going to get killed, make sure they're one, not killed by a foreign state, or two, not killed by domestic actors masquerading as a foreign state. And if you're going to stand in an election against Hillary Clinton, make sure that uh, you don't kill yourself by three gunshot wounds to the back of the head just to make sure you've got it right the first time. Um, it, it seems surreal, and it is, but um, the world is animal form, and it's always going to be a bit of that, hopefully less rather than more, but uh, some animals are more equal than others and if you die in circumstances that have a foreign angle to them, you might not get the full inquest or the full broader justice that you deserve. Totally remarkable. Yes. Uh, uh, Lars Schott says, since you mentioned Slovakia randomly, check out slovexit.sk It's not only Britain, it's Every EU country that has a movement like Brexit now. And everyone is waiting to see how it goes in Britain. And if it is successful, those ideas will get popular in the mainstream. Thank you for that. And my apologies to anyone in Slovakia in any way offended uh, by what I said uh, about them. I often thought that Czechoslovakia uh, was a very fine country and should have stayed together. Here's Edward in Florida. Let's hear from him. Edward, go ahead. All right, thank you for having me, Mr. Galloway. Welcome, sir. Uh, the question I had is that, uh, do you think we're ever going to face a, a time in the West where we're too bankrupt to wage the wars in the Middle East and then you know, in uh -huh. Eastern Europe and Ukraine? What a very good question. Not as long as they've got a printing press, <laughs> I suppose. They just print it anyway, don't they? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, they got a hundred billion being printed right now, uh, repos, right? You know, what could so, possibly go wrong? Well, the, 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 it, it bothers me because, like, yeah. as a veteran, I served uh, in the Iraq War uh, before becoming a. I was pretty awake to the, the realities of, of that service, but yeah, I, I just sit here wondering, what, you know, watching TV, watching us deploying troops into. Saudi Arabia and Al-Tanth and, and Southeast and Syria. And I'm wondering, who, who is paying the bill? I mean, we have a two-trillion well, dollar uh, that, deficit that, here. I mean, yeah. you're, the, you're the second uh, military man to call up and make uh, actually quite similar points, and I'm very grateful to both of you. And it's true that uh, Trump has moved forces into both Iraq uh, from Syria and into Saudi Arabia, freshly from somewhere else. Um, in the case of Saudi Arabia, Trump says that the Saudis are paying us for all that we're doing for them, and he's very grateful uh, to it. But Edward's on to something there, isn't he, Adam? Well, yes, and as to the first point, um, the printing press will go on and on, but as more and more of uh, American and Western debt as a whole is owned by non-Western sources, eventually they'll realize, hmm, this paper that they're giving us to buy their debt is being, its value is going down and down and down. And so, as I was saying the other week, either China goes on to the gold standard first or America goes back to the gold standard first. Frankly, they ought to, as the two 
two largest economies cooperate together. Because when you have a gold standard, you can't afford these endless wars unless you go off the gold standard, which Britain did to fight the stupid First World War, which America did to fight the stupid war in Vietnam, and there are other examples as well. Uh, as to the second question, I, I'm not too critical of Trump for that move. While I think that the boys should be brought back home, and their home is in Saudi Arabia or Iraq, the, there is a glaring difference. America has no authorization from any legal source to be in Syria, where it does in Saudi Arabia, and arguably it does in Iraq. Uh, the government has signed off for it. Whether the people want American troops there, you know all too well that most of them probably don't. But that legal difference is quite important especially given uh, Bush and Obama's record of totally running a, a, a blowtorch to international law. Last word to you, Edward. Well, uh, speaking of those who are floating our, uh, you know, the debt for us, do you ever see a time where China might start defending uh, the One Belt, One Road initiatives in the Middle East? Not, not through military means, no. Certainly not anytime soon. Uh, the character of a culture doesn't change. Economic fortunes change. Cultures can be destroyed, sometimes from without, sometimes from within. But until that culture is destroyed, its character remains similar. China is not and has never been a, an outwardly expansionist empire. What it has been at its most successful is one of the most successful commercial benign empires in the world. We saw that with the ancient Silk Road, and I think that the new Silk Road, Belt and Road, One Belt, One Road, call it what you will, is going to be similar. So I don't see uh, China getting involved in the mission creep uh, to protect its assets, certainly not anytime soon. Edward in Florida, thank you very much indeed. A very good call. Another military man uh, yes. listening to the uh, show. I'll say this. The military men at all ranks, except for the very highest, because at that level they kind of become politicians, but the military men from those enlistees to very high officers in most countries know a hell of a lot more about the importance of peace than politicians do, because these men have to live war. And when you live war, you get a very important lesson on what peace means. These politicians sitting in the gilded palaces who would cry murder if they got so much as a paper cut know absolutely nothing, which shows why they're so willing to send other men and finer men to their deaths. Amen to that. Uh, the European uh, Lead Not Leave UK, uh, Susan Burning Ha too, says, are you completely out of your mind? <laughs> the last thing Vardakar or Ireland needs is a bunch of warring religious hardliners. You need to own them, Susan. They're Irish. However much the DUP like to pretend otherwise, they are Irish. We don't want them. You'll have to own them. You should have had them all along. Here's Jonathan in Kentucky about the atomic bomb. Quickly, Jonathan, not much time left. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I just wanted to add that the, after the uh, second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th in 1945, about three days later, most people don't know, that Curtis LeMay, the general that was running the Air Force and the raids on Japan, had another raid on Tokyo that killed 230,000 yes. people, in addition to the two previous raids that killed about the same, uh, same amount. So this came, that, this came yeah. after Hiroshima and Nagasaki? 
Correct. Most I didn't know that. Know that. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, You've you educated me. Yeah. Yeah, you can look it up. It's, it's, it's in there. You just have to dig. But I just found out about it a couple of months ago in a 1960s book on the air war. And uh, I, th I honestly I thought they surrendered right, right after the second nuclear bomb. Uh, but, uh, of course, I'll take your word for it. I will indeed uh, look it up. Jonathan, go on. I don't believe they actually capitulated until the 19th or the 21st, I believe. Okay. But uh, on that, clearly Curtis LeMay was a racist because he, he ran with uh, the third-party candidate in 1968, which was the former governor of Mississippi. Maybe you remember him. Yeah. Uh, Wallace. And he was his vice presidential candidate. This was designed to kill as many Japanese as, po as possible. Yeah. It was all about the hate. And a lot of people he, don't realize... He, he wanted to wipe out uh, Korea with nuclear weapons and so on. Uh, listen, uh, yeah. Jonathan, unfortunately, uh, the show is almost uh, over. Thanks very much indeed for your call. To all those who tried to get through and couldn't because we've been so busy tonight, my apologies and all those who wrote but haven't had their missives uh, read out. Uh, also, my apologies. Eaton Tax Dodger for PM. <laughs> Not his real name, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> Says, leave voters were lied to. Democracy is only for those who can afford it. Do you see any poor people elected to lead? Well, I was pretty poor uh, when I was elected to Parliament, and in previous years, you couldn't really, in this country at least, have gotten any poorer than I was. Uh, so I'm not sure of the validity of your last point. As to your first one, that leave voters were lied to, I repeat what I said to someone uh, earlier on. Every single general election that my side has lost, I spent the next five years telling anyone who would listen that the victorious party had told a pack of lies and would be ruinous, disastrous for them. And oftentimes I was absolutely correct. But I could not have hoped to go up to a police officer or an army officer or a civil servant and persuade them that because of their lies, that government had no right to be in office. That ain't how it works. If you win, you have a right to implement that which you won. And if you abandon that principle, I promise you, not only will no problem ever be solved, you will invent new and even more terrible problems. Democracy is the worst system in the whole world, apart from all the others. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, tell someone else and be back here next week at the same time in the same place. It's good night from Adam and me.